a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. You're listening to a Zero Limits podcast brought to you by Two Ravens Tactical and Iron and Lead Cartel. Hosted by Australian veterans, we're here to give you the motivation for you to complete any goal you set your mind to. On these podcasts, we're going to be speaking to high-charging people with the Zero Limit mindset that never say no. Let's go. All right, Zero Limits listeners, on today's Zero Limits podcast, Shane, we are chatting to Ryan Fugit. Yes, I'm just reading. Now, he runs, yes, uh, he runs uh, Combat Story, which is a podcast in the US. And honestly, that was one of the main reasons why I I started this podcast was because of that podcast that he did. And he does, you know, a similar thing, just gets a whole bunch of veterans on and just gets them to share their story and just talk shit with them and send it. However, uh, Mr. Fugit, he is a veteran, uh, mm-hmm. post 9-11 era. Yes. He was an AH-64 pilot, which is an Apache. Cool as fuck. Really super cool. Spent seven years as an Apache pilot and served alongside, you know, all the ground forces in uh, Afghanistan. Probably Australians as well. I'm in sure, yeah. 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 I, you know, I remember when I was there, we were sitting on top of a feature and we, the Dutch were in a, in a firefight mm. and- um, Watched the whole thing. It was like a movie. Yeah. Watching yeah. it from a hill. It's only about two Ks away. And then these two American Apaches come in and that was the end of it. That's cool. That was so. just the end of it. They just sent their, their rockets, their their guns and whatever guns they got on there and just sent it. Bombs. And they just went quiet. Like five minutes later, just quiet. And I was like, sort of that out. What's the difference cool. between Apaches and our Tigers? A lot. Oh, uh, yeah. Apparently it's just the technology, isn't it? Okay. I don't know. And we know tigers. Tiger, tigers are fucking rubbish. Are they? Uh, that's what I heard, yeah. We'll have I don't to know. get a we'll tiger pot. Yeah. Rowl. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, after the CIA, um, again, this is everything we're reading, spent eight years in the CIA's Directorate yeah. of Operations. That's fucking Which I don't know what that means. But again, we'll find out. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> now, obviously, he runs the, the combat story, and uh, we'll find out what he's doing the current day. Let's get on it. Let's get him on. All right, listeners, on today's Zero Limits podcast, we have a former veteran from the United States. Uh, he was an Apache pilot, been a bit of time CIA ops officer. I have no mm. idea what it is. Everything we know about the CIA is just like- American dad. Just American <laughs> dad <laughs> and TV shows and movies. Uh, but let's get him on and have a chat. Ryan Fugit, how are you, mate? I'm great. 
Thanks a lot, fellas. Sorry for making you all get up so early, but uh, it's great to connect. No, Thanks that's, for having that's me. That's all good, man. And drama. as I said, I reached out because you run the Combat Story podcast, which is uh, a really, really cool podcast. And it's the reason why we started our podcast, because I listened to pretty much every single episode that you've put out. And uh, that's the reason why we got into it. So, mate, let's just start off right from the start. Can you just tell us who you are and what led you to join Armed Forces, but not even just the armed forces, become an Apache pilot. Like you got to, cool. you got to have half a brain to at least fly one of those. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I grew up overseas. So I love talking to people and connecting with folks who have this international background. Uh, my old man was in the State Department, so everybody thinks he was CIA, but he was not. Um, it was one of the first <laughs> things I did when I got to CIA was check to see if he was actually in, and uh, it turns out he was not. So he was honest with us. But he was a political officer for years all over the world. So. I grew up in Southern Africa, um, Pakistan, Europe, and then I came back to the US for kind of like end of junior high, high school. And that was the first experience I really had of the US. So I think the kind of the way I grew up, I had this vision of America being this great like place where I, I heard all these cool stories. I watched Hollywood, you know, like reading books, and I just couldn't wait to get back there. Um, and that kind of influenced my perception of the US. And I really just haven't grown up in a lot of third world countries. I think I could appreciate what a place like the US or these these types of first world countries can do to help yep. out. And I wanted to be a part of that. But I, I guess the the military side has been a part of my family from my earliest days. So my old man flew Hueys in Vietnam. Matt, if, if you've listened to the show, you probably heard me yep. interview him. Yep. Certainly have. Um, uh, Silver Star, Distinguished Flying Cross. So he only spent a couple years in active basically for Vietnam. And then he spent the rest of his career in the reserves. So he would fly off every year for a couple of weeks to go do something with the reserves. But you know, it wasn't anything too sexy. But I just always grew up like looking at his medals on the wall. Um, I'd ask him questions. I remember us driving like through the, through the Arizona flatlands, basically on a trip back to the US when I was younger. And I was like, just tell me that story again of you guys going into a hot LZ. <laughs> He'd tell me about it. And I think I was always a little disappointed he didn't fly gunships. He, he, flew, <laughs> yeah. he flew slicks is what they call them. You know, just like no, no armament. They had door gunners. And I was like, man, dad, why don't you fly those Cobras? And he said, you had to be there for two tours typically to get Cobras. Like oh, you had yeah, to do right. slicks first okay, and then right. go on to gunships. So um, when the military was just kind of a foregone conclusion for me early on, I really wanted to be a SEAL. I watched Top Gun more times than you can count. <laughs> Like I'm so pumped for Top Gun two to come oh, out. It's gonna it came be so on, good. Like, it's been oh man, I was watching the last a, two years, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Who would you be? Who like in the original Top? Who oh come on, that's an impossible question. I'd be impossible. Ice Man. I'd be Ice Man. He's just an asshole. Who Val? <laughs> yeah, Val Kilmer. Yeah. yeah, he's just yeah. the ultimate asshole, but the best pilot. He's better than Maverick. Oh god, I can't wait for this thing to come out. Man. <laughs> we saw it in like we saw a preview for it in a yeah. theater. Yeah, yeah it's going to be sick as. It's going to be fucking loose. Anyway, so like I grew up watching that. I ended up going in the army, following my dad's footsteps. I have two older brothers who are army, who were army officers. One was another pilot. One was a tank commander. And I just really wanted to go in. But I will say one of the toughest decisions I had to make was the night before choosing what I wanted to do in the army, yep. uh, aviation or infantry. And- Oh, you chose the right I, one. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, man. <laughs> 
So I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about like, hey, what would have happened if I had gone the infantry route instead of going go in aviation? But I'd have regrets either way, I think. Yeah. Part of it's Catholic guilt growing up Catholic. Yeah. I just I just have a remorse for most things. But I, I would have regretted not being able to have this connection with my old man that I have now because we've yep. both flown in combat. We have very similar stories from our times in combat, just 40 years apart. And that's really special for us. So I would have missed out on that. But I do think of it often. Yeah, yeah, how, right. That's how crazy. Old, how old are your bros, Ryan? Are they older, yeah, younger? Yeah, they're older than me. So yeah. um, both of them got in pre-9-11. So obviously a very different military, as you yeah. guys know. And one of them stayed in post 9-11, but he had moved on to staff jobs at the time. So he didn't he didn't get into like the tactical unit type work, but he did deploy and serve overseas. Okay. So you enlisted in the army uh, as a, a pilot. It's just, it's just a general pilot, is it? Uh, yeah. So, pilot. so yeah. we went, we did the officer track and aviation's got two tracks to get in to fly. One is your commissioned officers and then one is warrant officers. Yep. So you got guys who can go, they call it high school to flight school here. So you could be 18 years old, That's graduate cool. from high school and be flying an Apache like in wow. 18 months. That's crazy. Which I think is awesome. It is, that, yeah, imagine that as a 19 year old just cruising around an Apache. What, what are they What are they worth? Apache? 50? 40 million. It's got to be. It's, it's the price it's, is right here. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's got to be up I there. Think, I think Trump did say it was like 40 or 50 because when he was whinging about Biden leaving everything in Afghanistan, he's like, the Apaches are worth $50 million. <laughs> with, with, uh, from what you say, from high school to flight school, are there certain subjects in school you got to study like from like year 10 or anything or you just go, hey, I think I want to be no. a pilot. Yeah. You just want to be a pilot. That's what, so a lot of guys will enlist to go and be, you know, like SF to guarantee that they get a chance to be SF or Ranger or whatever. Gotcha. Okay. They've got one for flight school. And so I, I was in there with you young guys. Know. Yeah. Crazy. But I, but I went a different route. I went the officer route. So guys yeah. go to West Point college, ROTC. And then, I, so I went in at like 22 and everybody goes into the same pipeline to learn how to fly. And it's 10 months and it's nonstop competition. Like every single thing you do is evaluated, and that determines what aircraft you get to fly later. Oh, so that's too. the other other three services: Navy, Navy, uh, so it's just 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 Army, just, just Army, and, okay. and that sucks because they got us in the middle of nowhere in Alabama, and the Navy's like flying off the coast of Florida. <laughs> yeah, they, they do. Like they're down in Florida. So yeah. with the Navy Air School, do you know anything about? Is that like the sort of sort of the same as well? Same same as the Marines. It, it is pretty similar, my understanding okay. for their helos. Like I think people select in a rotary wing or a fixed wing, and gotcha. then they go separate tracks from the start. Right, right. And then they have a few aircraft that they can select from as well. Just like we like we had four different airframes that we could choose from or compete for. What are they? Chinooks, Blackhawks, Apaches. And at the time it was Kiowa. Kiowa and and yeah. actually we had one um fixed wing like surveillance aircraft slot that one dude in our class took, which was super surprising to everyone. Yeah, right. That's crazy. Yeah. You enlist, you go to boot camp. How was uh, your transition from boot camp to, you know, because I guess in boot camp, obviously you get all the different cores that are going to be all training in one spot. And then do, do you get treated a little bit different because you're becoming a pilot or you just treat the same? Like it's worse. So, it's worse. <laughs> this, this might be different from the Aussie side of the house where for us, when we go through, there's no boot camp for officers. Okay, You go through a separate oh, okay. training pipeline. Yep. 
um, to be an officer. So we do the commission route, like college, you take classes, yep. but then you go into directly into your branch. So I immediately went to flight school with all the other people who are doing aviation and okay. like infantry guys are going to Fort Benning, Georgia to yep. do infantry. They call it officer basic course, OBC. So I did aviation OBC. Other guys did infantry OBC, all that. Okay. Gotcha. So, so we're like from the start, we are on our own thinking we're super cool because we're pilots <laughs> until we get to the real army and nobody thinks that. <laughs> and obviously you had Top Gun in your mind as well. So you're wearing white singlets and your dog tags outside. Oh yeah, it? man. Oh yeah. <laughs> hey, they what? issued us, they issued us um, aviator sunglasses oh, when we no got way. there and we Fucking just thought kidding. that was the coolest stamp. Did they really? Yeah. That's that's super cool. <laughs> what did you do after school till you were 22? Because obviously that's like a three-year gap for you gap. No, high, we finished up high school at 18. So I guess year, I don't know how the system goes in Australia. Yeah, 12. So we, yeah, so our 12th grade yep. is high school. And then yep. I was in college for four years, which is the the typical officer path in. Okay, yeah. So 18 to 22, I was in college, played sports, studied, had you know degree, but at the same time, taking military classes along the way, doing gotcha. field training exercises you know, on weekends, going out to the range. In the summers, I went and did airborne school, air assault school. That's sick. Yeah. Party. So, so that was pretty cool, actually. Doing that in the summertime was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, how long is your flight school? You said about 18 months, is it? Yeah. So from depending on what airframe you get, start to finish, it's about eight months. 18 months. And like, what are you getting taught? Is it just clouds and air yeah. and hey, stuff man, like that first, and all that stuff? Yeah. First thing you get taught is weather. Weather, so yeah. they put you in a classroom. You don't even smell an aircraft for months. Oh, they just still. talk to you about, here's what the weather's like. Here's Precious. your avionics on board, like the, the different flight instruments and systems. They teach you about an, the engines, the transmissions. Like I had never seen an engine with my own two eyes before. And we <laughs> went into this room and saw this like jet engine. And, and you got to learn how to f- follow like a drop of oil through the system and really know it inside and out. So they spend a lot of time in the classroom and then you go to what they call your basic flight training. So this is obviously just like not killing yourself or the instructor. <laughs> um, and that's flying like flat. They take off for you. They hand you the controls and you just try to keep it stable for a while. Then they teach you how to hover, which I've talked about on another podcast, yep. but it's like, I don't know how people survive that. They it's like five hours. Thing, isn't it? It's super difficult. Super difficult. Really? Everybody can do it, but um, it just really breaks you breaks you down ego wise. Learning how to hover, it's so difficult, and nobody gets it right away. Wow! Like why? You think like my uncle's also a pilot in in the RAM, and um, he he was explaining to me years and years ago. But you think trying to hover, you just like it's going not, up a little like, bit. Touch like the, like the pedals, like the hand control. You know, you think you just, yeah. like, just, just let it go. And it'll just like, we'll just stay there. That's no, not, not, not the case. Yeah. <laughs> That's what no. drones do. So as you, I mean, I've got like an Apache model over here. I could probably show you. Yeah, but yeah. Bring it over. Here, let me grab it. Bring it over. <laughs> Look at that sword in the background. Up. That towering. That's a sword. That's a, <laughs> a giant sword. I was like, this bloke's playing my video games in his bed. Must be, looks like it's been snapped. Last of my hands. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of crap that pilots keep on hand because we still think we're cool. So, um, look at the paint job on it. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's slick. It's slick. This is a gift. So, hey, basically, you got three controls. One changes the pitch and the blades. Yep. One change and the basically the power to the blades. And then one's also controlling the tail rotor. So, as you change each of those, everything else changes. So, as yeah. you take off off the ground, like you pull in the, the collective to raise up. And as you do that, it changes the pitch in the blade and changes the direction that the aircraft wants to move. Really? So, you put in cyclic, the joystick, to correct that. And so, you correct that. But when you do that, it also changes the uh, 
trim here. So you kind of go out like this and you have to push on the pedals to straighten it out. And then the whole thing starts over again. So it's constantly like when you start learning how to hover, you pick up and it's like this all (laughs) over the place. And then, and slowly you get to a point where you're just like hovering in one spot, Yeah, right. but it takes five to eight hours for everyone. That's hectic because it just seems like such a easy thing. Like every time I watch a zombie movie, I'm like, I can fly a helicopter for sure. Every time, (laughs) every time we used to do the vert traps, like the Navy, like from ship to ship, like transferring goods. And you see them, they just like two ships laterally side by side. And the helos just go bang, bang, left or east to west. And you're thinking, oh, yeah. But now that you say that, you're like, man, the pop bolts were fucking guns. Like, they're fucking. And if like they're trying to land on the ship, the ship, the flight deck's up and down, pitching and rolling. Yeah, that's really hard. I, I've yeah, never had they, to do that, but people fear having to land on. They bloody on match that. it, you know, like they mimic like the flight deck and just. Poof, yeah. yeah. So, so what, is, what stage during the 18 month uh, program that you get to, they assign you Apache or. Uh, you know, Black Hawk or... Yeah, probably around the 10-month mark. So you kind of go through the basics. Like you learn to fly, you learn to solo. So you're flying without an instructor, you mm-hmm. hover, and then you just do all these traffic patterns until you're kind of comfortable. Then they take you out and do like low-level flight. So five to 10 feet off the trees, flying around, landing in confined areas, which is really scary. So really narrow places to drop people like you, Matt, like when you go in and drop off some... Uh, some airborne troopers. <laughs> Putting you guys into a confined area is pretty tough. So you kind of learn how to recon it, land, manage your power, take off and get out. And you just do that for months. Um, you learn how to fly without any visual perception. So all instrument flight in case you're in bad weather, that's really tough. That usually knocks a couple people out of the course. Yep. Um, but once you get through all that in the same aircraft, which is usually a like a commercial version of a Kiowa, it's called a Bell Jet Ranger. Yep. Oh, yep. Then you go, basically your whole class sits in a room and they say, hey, the army has 30 aircraft for you, 30 people. And it just happens. There's two Apaches, 18 Blackhawks, whatever. Number one in the class, what do you, and then you pick it that comes off the board and you just go down the list for 30 people. You're on. So were you, were you number one? I, yeah. One and two took Apaches and then everything else. Oh went. yeah. Top of the class. Because you know what they yeah. say, Ron, if you're not first, you're last. Yeah. That's right, man. It was Top Gun coming back to <laughs> Was it, was there other uh, pilots in that class that wanted to be Apache pilots? And it was just like a, yeah. 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 Everyone. So the third aircraft selected was a Kiowa because it also has guns. Oh yeah. So the guy who got that really wanted Apaches, but there were only two. So it's, so I, I guess that's the reason I say it is there's a lot of pressure for those 10 months yeah. to try to get up high because you want to mm-hmm. have the your choice. You don't know how many Apaches or Blackhawks or whatever are going to be slated for your class. So you just want to give yourself the best chance possible. And is there a reason why you wanted to be Apache, not just a, like a black hole? Shoot people. Shoot people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it came <laughs> back to me wanting to be, <laughs> possibly wanting to go infantry. Like I wanted to be up there in the front and supporting these guys. Yeah, gotcha. And I felt like if we were doing that, that's as close as I could get to having both both worlds there. Yeah, yeah, right. So you finish your 18 months, uh, you're assigned uh, AH-64 Apache pilot. Uh, where, do, where do you get posted to? So I went through right after, I graduated from college in 2002, went to flight school. So I was in flight school, like as Afghanistan was going on, Iraq was kicking off. Okay. And it was really painful for me to be sitting there while the war was going on. I really felt like I was going to miss this war, like the Gulf War. Yep. It's going to happen in six months. Yeah. And so I went to a unit in Germany that was currently at that time deployed to Iraq. And it was it was supposed to be this unit that was going to show everybody what the new Apache that had new technology on it, new capabilities could do 
and they got they got uh, some pretty bad. They got into some difficult situations. They got shot up pretty bad, and it was a bit of a black eye for the Apache community for a bit. Okay. So I was there. Like I arrived, and they redeployed maybe a month after I got there. So I was the only guy without a combat patch. Um, I was having to lead a platoon that had just come back. Morale was pretty low. They just did a documentary on them, actually, that one of the listeners on Combat Story brought up. I'll see if I can find it and shoot it to you yeah, so yeah, in yeah, the show notes so people can take a look. Um, but yeah, so I went to Germany. I was there for three years and they did not redeploy, which was crazy at that oh, time. Wow. Usually it was like people just getting cycled through. So I was just waiting to go downrange. That's, wow. That's not a bad place in there, Germany. It wasn't. No, it years. was awesome. My my <laughs> wife was there with me. Like we had no kids. Life was easy at that time. Yeah. Traveled a lot. Um, and I tried to soak up whatever I could from these guys who had come back from combat. You know, like this was one of the first times we'd been downrange. They'd seen it, seen a whole lot of Iraq. And yeah. so I was just trying to learn what I could. So that was, uh, yeah, 2002 ish. Obviously, September yeah. 11, September 11, 2001 happens. Where would, like, again, this is a common theme for all our guests and, you know, all your guests as well. Everyone knows yeah. exactly where they were and uh, make, run us through that day. Yeah. So I went to college in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown. So I was in D.C. when 9-11 happened. So I, I think I was doing PT that morning. I actually don't remember, but I came back and I roomed with three other guys. And it was odd for them to be up early in the morning, but they were all up watching TV <laughs> when I came in. And you know, I sat down and we were watching what was going on. Um, and, and later that day, like we went out and we could see the smoke coming off the Pentagon yeah. like after that happened. And I remember like trying to call my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now. And like no cell coverage, everything was kind of blacked out, just overloading the system basically. Um, but I, I distinctly remember seeing the smoke coming from the Pentagon that day. Like that left a pretty significant impression. And then just the other the other thing I'll say, I, I haven't mentioned this much, but a couple months after that, I went to Arlington for the first um, casualty in the war, Mike Spann, who was CIA, CIA former yep. Marine. Yep. I just went there, like I saw that they were going to have it in the newspaper. So I showed up and that like I, I remember that even more than 9-11, like that, the kind of how cold it was, the spouse, all the people there, the uniforms, everything like that yeah. meant a whole lot to me. Yeah. Actually that Mike Spann, uh, we had uh, an A-10 pilot. He was a pararescue before he was an A-10 pilot. And uh, he was one of the guys that actually picked him up. He's, uh, he's oh. recovered his body. Yeah. Crazy, crazy story. Crazy story. But um, Arlington, yeah, I've, I've been to Arlington. I went there last year and uh, it- Look, for me, I've been to Washington, D.C. a few times, but I didn't know where the Pentagon was, and I didn't realize how close the Pentagon actually is to – it's yeah. literally just across the river. Oh, really? It's, it's all, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's always amazing how close planes fly. Like, they fly right down the river, and they land at Reagan National, which is right there on the water. Yeah. Like, they're just flying right around all of these national monuments. They're near the White House, the Pentagon, everything. It's so close. Yeah, it's right there. Yeah, you don't realize until you go there. Yeah. With, with Arlington um, – Obviously, you have the choice to be buried in your hometown. Let's say your hometown's Mont- Montgomery, Alabama, right? But if you wanted to be buried there, what's like the, the main purpose for like soldiers and sailors? You you have the option to do it if yeah. uh, you've served. So gotcha. a lot of people, like when we were writing our wills, I'm sure you guys had to do this. Mm, when you write yeah. your will before you go down range, that was one of the things you put on there. Okay. You know, right. so- yeah. I, I don't know if I'm getting at your question though, Shane. Like basically yeah. I think most Just most mil- vets want to go be buried go, at Arlington, gotcha. but yeah. some people have like really strong hometown roots and they'll yeah, they'll gotcha. want to be buried in Montgomery yeah, or wherever. Yeah. I don't think we have anything like that here in Australia. No. We just no. yeah. But it's yeah, I'd actually like to find my will that I wrote when I was nineteen. Yeah, so I couldn't imagine what's in it. It'd be <laughs> 
It'd be something stupid. I think, I think mine's as basic as fat basic. It's nothing yeah. crazy. <laughs> I'd like to be buried on the moon. <laughs> hey, did you guys have to put down what you wanted on your tombstone? What you want to read? Yes, on there? that's what I'd love to find it and just to see what I remember. <laughs> I don't want to see that. 100% man. of something stupid. Mine would be something stupid. A bunch of infantry blokes writing on the will at I 19. Think, I don't think I even had that chance. Yeah. They just said, Where do you want to be cremated or, or buried? And I said, Cremated. I don't know. They said, What about your ashes? I said, Just thrown out to sea. <laughs> take, take me hey. out on the ship, throw me out to sea. Can I ask you guys a question real quick? Yes. Go for it. Hey, Anzac Day was recent, right? Oh, was. Um, can, like most Americans know almost nothing about this. Oh, can you yeah. just share a little bit about it? Sure. I know, I know, yeah. I'm on y'all's show, but I nah, think yeah, nah, Americans nah, nah, listening nah, to this yeah, should hear it. Yeah. All right. Uh, so Anzac Day commemorates the uh, Gallipoli landings of the Australian New Zealand Army Corps. Um, so yeah. So ever since Anzac Day, the 1915, uh, it was 1915, um, and then they just basically it's just a day. It's like your Veterans Day. Was it it's Veterans Day? Yeah, I think so. I, I kind of feel like it's a mix of Veterans Day and Memorial Day. Yeah, where, similar. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah we were fallen, but also stuff, yeah. we also. Um, so Anzac Day in Australia is massive. Remembrance Day in Australia um, isn't as big, so the 11th or the 11th, but over in the U- UK and other Commonwealth country, it is absolutely huge over there. But Anzac Day in Australia, it's a public holiday. It's a day that we go to a dawn service. So like this year was the first year we've had a dawn service without like the COVID restrictions and COVID bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, the one here in, in Newcastle was absolutely massive. It was probably about 20,000 there, which is huge. Um, we have like, they chat for about an hour. Like They just do all, all the stuff. Stuff, so yeah, it's good. And then we do a march. Yeah, Anzac exactly Day is a great day, and you know it, the 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 day of the event in Gallipoli. It surrounds. <laughs> there's a lot of controversy about it because they landed on the wrong beach, and, and the English put us the there. English yeah. put us there, and the English made us you know do waves of just charges against the you know the machine, machine gun, gun fire, yeah. and it's just one of those days. It was just. You know, just yeah. an absolute wipeout for the yeah. Australian, and yeah, uh, yeah we're just Kiwis. It's, it, it's an awesome day, and again, it's like it's like Memorial and Veterans Day in Fun the US. Fun fact just- as well, I don't think many people might know this. Um, here in Newcastle, there's Anzac Parade and there's Lemnos Parade, and they both are two cross section streets, and they're, they're not they're not major roads, but Lemnos is an island that the Anzacs were at before they went across to Turkey and where the nurses were. And we actually visited that in 2015 on a ship for the 100 years. Um, And this place in Greece, it's a little island, they have actually Anzac Parade, like one of their streets is Anzac Parade. Um, and it's all in like Greek, Greek writing and stuff. So, yeah, Lemnos and Anzac Parade. Yeah, right. in, in yeah. a bit of trivia for the yeah. day. Uh. Mate, thanks for that question. That was actually a good <laughs> yeah. one. That yeah. was actually a good one. Um, so... So September 11 happens, then you end up in, uh, you get posted to Germany for three years and just living the life there, drinking Steins, Oktoberfest. Bratwurst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bratwurst. Um, what, what year does that take you up to, 2005? Yeah, so that's like 2006 right 2006, there. 2006, yep. Yep. And then, and then we go, there, yeah, we go to, I, I was telling you earlier about the officer basic course, then you go to the advanced course. So I oh. went back and did the infantry tank one. I wanted to be closer to, to those guys and how they learned and trained to be company commanders. So I went to that, which is in Georgia. And then we went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which is the home of the 101st Airborne Division, storied unit within the US. And as I was getting ready to go there, they were on orders to go to Afghanistan. So I was there in the, you know, we call it the ops shop, the S3 shop for a couple months before we deployed. And then once we got into country, 
Um, I was helping to run ops and then I was tapped to be a company commander there. So I, when we were in Afghanistan, it was 2000, we, we got there, we were there for all of 2008, basically like right before 2008, just to, you know, a couple of days, 2009. Yeah, right. That's the exact same time as I went to my first trip. Um, how did you go? Like how, how, what were your emotions like? You know, obviously Afghanistan was absolutely roaring at that stage too. It was just combat after combat and fighting and how, how, how were your thoughts? Yeah. So I, I think actually for us, the, the main focus was Iraq with the surge going on in 2007. Yeah. So Afghanistan was a little bit on the back burner, uh, not significantly, but when you talk to other guys, like most of the guys I knew, especially coming out of the course that I was just at, were going to Iraq. So I think for me, I, I really wanted to go to Afghanistan. I just personally believed in that fight more than I did what was going on in Iraq. Like obviously would go to either one, but with what happened with 9-11, I just so badly wanted yeah. to be in Afghanistan. And I had grown up in Pakistan. Like I knew that area pretty well. Um, so it was kind of familiar territory for me. So I really wanted to get back there. I, I was married at the time. I had a six-month-old son. That was way tougher than I anticipated. And just kind of like walking away from all of that, like nobody teaches you how to do it. You guys know what it's like yeah. to just turn your back and like oh, lock yeah. your house and walk away or walk away from your family yeah. knowing like, Hey, I don't know how long I'm going to see you next time if I'll see you again. So I think like that really weighed on me. I wasn't in command at that time. So it was just me. But by the time I took command, like then you're responsible for 40 other people, all their spouses, like all of that takes on more weight. So I would say for me, I was feeling that that's kind of the, the thought process I had was how do I take care of you know myself to come back from my family, but also give everything I have mission, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So 2008, uh, whereabouts in Afghanistan? So we were in Salerno in coast. So east side of the country in RC East. Yeah. Where were you at, Matt? I was uh, Orsgarn Province, which is uh, Tarankat. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So we, one of the reasons that I brought up Iraq being the main effort, like we just didn't have much aviation at the time. I don't know if that impacted you, but like we, we were one Apache company, so eight to 10 aircraft covering like six or seven provinces. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I wow, think we had two, two Apache, two, U, two US Apaches and that was it. It was the only yeah. two stationed there and the rest were just Dutch. Yeah, right. Okay. It's just not enough to, to cover those areas. So like we, some parts of our AOR, we'd be flying like an hour and a half to just get to the contact. Jesus. Yeah, which, yeah, wow. you know, like. It's too late. Ticks, yeah. ticks will end yeah. in minutes, yeah. not hours. Exactly. So you're in the on the eastern side. So cost cost was like one of those badlands as well, like absolute badlands because it was just all uh, mountains up and down, wasn't it? So it, it it was in a bowl, is what we call yeah. it. Yeah. So like mountains all yeah. around, right on the border with Pakistan, but they called it the Coast Bowl. So like the climate was good. Um, it didn't get as cold as other places or as hot because of the way the environment was. And we also had Kaya was with us in our task force. So we would cover basically everything outside of coast and the Kiowas couldn't fly outside the bowl because of the elevation. Okay. They just didn't have the power to do it. So that we kind oh, of wow. let them cover coast and then we take everything outside the other like six provinces. We'd still do work there. But usually they'd handle it. Okay. And so do you, do you remember your first job? You're sitting in your bunk and uh, the sirens go off and you're running out to the <laughs> Apache. Off, yeah. And what was uh, what was that? Yeah. I mean, the first time I went out in an Apache there was a planned mission, like a planned op. So we were just going out to do a route reconnaissance, kind of covering another unit, a route sc- convoy security. So that one, I remember just a lot of the guys in my unit had already been deployed at least once, probably three times was the norm. By then, especially in the 101st, they went a lot. Yeah. And 
So this was nothing to them, especially at Convoy Security. But for me, and you know, you know what it's like, guys. And I, a lot of the guys I talk to, the first time you're outside the wire, you just think it's going to be World War Three. Like, <laughs> yeah. You're so on edge. Every everything is heightened. I, I was the same way. All my senses were heightened. And it was a daytime op. Nothing much happened. We did. We got into a little bit of a of a tick where we had some guys in an orchard, but it was daytime. They blended in really well. We couldn't really see them. So you know, in the end, it ended up being nothing. But that's exactly why I wanted was to do that type of op. So I, I felt really good coming out of it. I was learning in the being in the seat in these environments is huge. Like yeah, it just gives you so much education. Do you remember the first time you had troops in contact that called you out? Yeah, you know, you know, I ask everybody this question, and I don't really know if I could say like this first. We, I mean, obviously on that first op, but probably the first real time we had it. We would do deliberate operations with some SF teams that were there. They'd go and take the Afghan SF units that they had been training up on target. So you'd have several lift aircraft worth of people with the US SF ODA team. Yep. And we do like deliberate planning ops with them, which were pretty cool. You know, like we'd sit down, we do like a week-long planning cycle. And obviously they're running a lot of ops and so are we. So, you know, we do some prep work. We kind of look at where we'd have to land, pick the LZs, talk about the target, who the HVT was. A lot of the times we do rock drills. Yeah. You know, not everybody has the the time to do that, but when we did, we'd go through that. So on um, one of these initial ones, we go we went through that and we it was a nighttime op. That's really the only type that they did. And we put them on target. And for us, like as Apaches going overhead, we were usually the first two aircraft coming onto the target and we'd have the Blackhawks or Chinooks behind us. Yep. And our, our job was to just get eyes on to see if there are any sentries out, anybody on patrol that could give away the position. And you know, if so, like try to line them up and take a shot if we needed to. We never had to. And I think that would have been an incredibly difficult shot to take without having somebody shooting at you already. Like just having a guy on a on a wall with a yeah. weapon as we're infilling probably wasn't enough to take a shot. And we I Personally, I always worried that we'd have to do that. Yeah. Like we just never really had to. Um, but yeah, for this particular op, we were flying in. I think we had two two Blackhawks and a Chinook going in, landing pretty close to the objective. So like just off the objective with LZs that we had picked out in advance. And we kind of came up on the target, nothing to spook us. So we as Apaches would, would just radio back and say, it's clear. And then we'd go into an orbit. So immediately within two across two Apaches, we would drop our, um, basically on our on our computer screens, we would drop these little areas that would show who had what part of the AO or the objective. Yep. So we'd usually put like a, a box there and we'd say, hey, and we'd text it to the other aircraft and say, we're going to be in this box, you stay out. of." And so we'd set up patterns within that, but we know like, don't cross this line so that we don't um, run into each other, basically. Yeah, right. And then- and then once we're doing that, we're constantly checking in with the guys on the ground to see if they need support. We're looking around the outskirts to make sure nobody's coming in to reinforce. Or if somebody's a squirter, you know, like trying to egress, we try to get eyes on them to either take a shot or relay that to to the ground force commander or the JTAC so they know what's happening. Yeah. But I, I distinctly remember like we get on target and that was like what we did that night. We're setting up. The aircraft land as planned, um, which I would say is the norm. Like we usually pick out an LZ, we land to the LZ, we'd have the element of surprise, guys would go in. And this is where, I don't know if it was necessary, but it was helpful. The fact that I'd spent like eight months training with infantry company commanders, I knew exactly their scheme of maneuver on like how they were going to breach, move, block, contain, egress, all of that stuff. Like I just understood their 
terminology better. Yep. Yep. So it was really helpful as we were kind of going through these exercises. I knew what to expect. Um, but on this particular op, we had gotten we had gotten the HVT, and a few of the guys who were in the compound had had moved out to the outskirts um, and were trying to maneuver on our forces. So they were moving from kind of like a, a walled area to in an open area to a small room, basically. Yep, yep, that was yep. kind of the distance they had to cover as they were maneuvering. And we were relaying this to the ground commander. And he's like, all right, you guys are cleared hot. We had, you know, it wasn't a danger close shot by any means. Like these guys were moving, they had weapons. And so we lined up to take a couple gun runs on them, yes. which we did. <laughs> so we come in and that's our 30 mil round. So that's like big voice, eight inch long. Is that the same as the A-10? What's that? Is that the same as the A-10? The, the, yeah, 30 mil? No, 30 I think mil? they got a 40 mil on theirs. Gee. <laughs> I think, yeah. I think they got a 40 mil. Um, and I usually have a casing, but I just don't have it here. Anyway, so like those go off in, we usually had them going in 10 round bursts. We'd usually carry like 300 of them on board. So with those, like you set up, the guy in the front seat is the gunner. So he's on the controls to take the shot. Yeah. The guy in the back seat is flying the aircraft. So when we're doing that, we'll typically get our wingman behind us and yep. go into an attack pattern, or we'll make sure that they're clear, like way outside the area before we take a shot. But ideally, we'd be lined up together. We come in, uh, get lined up. The guy in the back seat makes sure everything's clear. And he tells the guy up front, hey, you're good to pull the trigger. And then you usually pull off a 10 round burst, wait like four or five seconds for it to hit the target. And you're usually flying in at like 1200 feet and yep. you're maybe offset kilometer taking the shot. You watch the rounds land, adjust fire, take another shot. So on this one, um, we took the initial shot, uh, wounded some of these guys, took a follow on shot. I think we killed maybe two of them. And then two more of these guys moved into this small building and we had an A-10 overhead at the time. <laughs> not an A-10. We had a- um, Expect a gunship. A Spectre. Yeah, not That's an A-10. <laughs> um, God, what's the name of it? Why am I losing that? Uh, AC-130. AC-130. Yeah. So we had one of them overhead. And when these guys were in the building, we coordinated with the ground force commander and we thought, hey, instead of us taking a shot with a hellfire on the small building, let's let the- oh, 107? The, yeah. Let's let these guys take care of it. And it was awesome yes. watching them work. Oh, so they were man. like, hey, just just uh, offset yourselves and we'll take care of this. So we moved off to the side and set up a racetrack. So we still had like a, a slant view of what was going on. We could see the good guys. We could see kind of this enemy position in case they got out. And this Spectre gunship just walked their rounds. Like they probably hit twice on the ground and then just demolished wow. like a very kind of surgical strike. Yeah. Once it hit, it was just like that thing was gone. Nothing else damaged. That um, is so and then, yeah. Cool. So these guys on the ground, <laughs> X filled, got on out. And, and that was kind of the first one that I really remember. Like this was, this was cool. This is like the SF units, not tier one, but still like, as far as I was concerned, these guys were awesome. Yeah. Um, and, and everything went as planned, you know, got some rounds off, got the HVT. Uh, so yeah, like I came out of that feeling pretty damn. Yes. Shit, yeah. Yeah. Brian, what arm guns does the Apache got? You said it has the 30 mil Hellfire missiles. What else does it got? Yep. And then we got, um, these 2.75 inch folding fin rockets. So they're like, okay, probably five foot long rockets that you can have with different types of warhead. So we would usually fly with either a phosphorus warhead. Oh. <laughs> so if we wanted to like mark a target or smoke someone out, yeah, like yeah. we would use that. Well, or, white phos white phosphorus or yeah. red phosphorus? <laughs> white, usually white. And then um, they'd also have these flechettes. So like these 
these really nasty little like razor blades that would come out blanket an area um, that, yeah. that we could also use. So we carry a few of those. We carry like 300 rounds of 30 mil. And then we usually have two or three hellfires, but we just couldn't carry a whole lot because of the altitude yeah. and the environment. And the it, yeah. it just puts so much of a strain on the aircraft. And I, I should say those rockets are not um, laser guided. So the the missile is laser guided. Like you are pulling a trigger, putting a laser on a target, you fire the hellfire, and then it seeks the laser. The the rockets and 30 mil are not like that. They're not quite the same. The rockets are completely like you do. We call it Kentucky windage. So really accounting for the direction of travel, the winds, and you use your laser to line up the shot. And there's a little bit of help that you're given, but for the most part, you're trying to, it's it's more of like old school taking a shot with uh, a Cobra. Yeah. Wow. That's okay. crazy. Do you, uh, do you guys take turns on flying and who's pulling the trigger? No. Not usually. So what you typically want is, especially for me as the, since I was the company commander at the time or the officer, I was usually in the front seat so that I could talk to the ground force commander, coordinate the battle space. Yeah. You didn't have to fly at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Entirely focused on that. Yeah. You just want to shoot some guns. You just want to shoot some guns. Well, yeah. But even (laughs) then, even then, usually the other aircraft is going to take the first shot because that's that's the two guys who all they're doing is flying and shooting. Whereas I'm trying to manage the battle yeah. like as well. So yeah. that's my priority as the officer. Yeah. Then the dude in the backseat is typically the stronger pilot who has more time on the controls and better situational awareness. And that person is talking to the other backseater and they're like, all right, let's get lined up, stay out of my airspace. While the guys in the front seat are really looking down at the target, trying to find targets, trying to figure out where the friendly forces are. Yeah. But you know you're the boss as well, so you can't have you can't fly yourself no. around. You got to have someone That's else right. fly you around. Have a That's chauffeur. right. With the um the, the uh, cannon, Ryan, the 30, 30 mil cannon, is that like wherever you look is where its crosshairs are as well? So you can set it up that way. You can yeah, set it up cool. so it's locked to the front of the aircraft, which gives you some advantages. But you also have it set up so wherever you look with your monocle, like the little eyepiece that you yeah. have, it it'll follow that. And so as you look, you can either pull the trigger on like oh, the cute. joysticks up front yeah. for the gunner. We have this kind of like almost like an upside down yoke mm-hmm. that you'd hold on to. And then in the back seat, and this is where we would typically use it. The guy in the back seat would look out to the side while he's flying and pull the trigger on his cyclic. And then it would fire off axis like that. So there were times so where hectic. like the, the hairiest mission I was on, that's what we had to resort to because myself and the, the other guy in the front seat, we were so close to the action. We could not pick up targets. Like the way that you try to use the optics it's easy when you're in a drone and you see it from like 10,000 feet looking down, it can kind of slowly look around. But when you're like right over a target flying, it's hard to get lined up and see yeah. what's going on with your optics. So we were real low and the guys in the back seat had to just take shots off axis, like very close to the aircraft um, with the with the monocle, basically. Crazy. So cool. Um, it's awesome though. Yeah. Just yeah. a quick one. <clears throat> I remember seeing a story, there's actually a video out where they're flying an Apache and they've got a couple of operators... Uh, well, buckled in on the side of these Apache. I think they were extracting or somewhere. Oh, oh UK, weren't they? I think. No, it was, was it UK or America? I think the UK's done it. Yeah. A couple US forces. Do you guys train it's, for stuff for that or is that yeah. your Yeah. Yeah, we train only once a year for that, just like that in is, case it happens. Cool. And we'll do it at a uh, just at an airfield. Obvious, you guys know how it is when you're in the conventional side of the military, the safety, ri- yeah, the safety reports you got to do. <laughs> so um, we train on that. You land, another pilot would come and hook up with a D-ring attached to their flight outfit. 
And there's there are different handles that they'll hook onto typically. And then you'll fly them around in a traffic pattern land. So they kind of get the feeling of it and you train how to do it. But yeah, they're like early on in Iraq, I believe, because we studied this earlier on as units did this, but they had to move a unit from like one part of a one side of a river to the other. And there just weren't any lift aircraft available. So the Apaches landed hooked some dudes on, ferried them over, got off, and then left. Oh, so yeah, cool? I that's, guess in times of need, you got to do it. <laughs> There's nothing better though, like yeah. hanging off the side of an Apache. So guys, Ron, <laughs> have you ever had to pump flares before? Yeah. Um, usually they were automatic flares oh, okay. coming yep. off. Um, you could pump them yourself. Like if you wanted to, to shoot some off as yep. like a show of force or just yeah. let people know you're there, you could. But typically like if, if you're taking small arms fire or depending on the the, the type of receptors you have, if like a flash of light hits them in the wrong way, it might set off uh, some of the the uh, early warning system we, and shoot off. Yeah, we had a commando on a few episodes ago, Corey James. He was saying that the they were getting crafty and using lasers, and they were hitting the set sensors for the um for the uh, black and off, stuff, yeah. and they were just sort of popping off layers. Yeah. Yeah. Was there any times where you've uh, copped small arms fire or RPGs being fired? RPGs and yeah, yeah. This this uh, one op that I was telling you about, like we um we were it was a daylight daytime op. We were exfilling an infantry company, so significant amount of guys that were on like the farthest end of our AOR. And Matt, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, RC East, but it was up in um, Ghazni province of Wardak. Yeah. Wardak. Yeah. yeah. So there's just an area there that notorious, like every time we went in there, people got shot up and we had infilled these guys, nothing happened. And then we exfilled them seven days later. The infantry battalion commander wanted his guys to get in a fight. Like that's what he was really hoping for. Wow. And nothing happened. It was real quiet. They were going from village to village in this long valley. And when we exfilled them, it was a totally different story. Um, we flew in two Apaches with two Chinooks, two Blackhawks, because we had to pull out a bunch of guys and we were going to exfil half of them by air. And the the other half, we were going to exfil out on the ground and give them convoy security because the half of them drove in. And it's just one road in and out of this valley. And so literally the first flight in with the Chinooks and Blackhawks, broad daylight, we're probably 15 Ks out coming in. And it's a very narrow valley yep. with, I don't know, probably like 10 to 12,000 foot mountains on either side, like really steep for our AOR. And we were just offset on like above the, above the mountaintop, but just offset to the side flying in and RPGs came up between our flight, like trying to hit the Chinooks. So it was Apache Chinook, Apache Chinook, and then our Blackhawks. And they were just shooting off RPGs to hit us in broad daylight. Then we we landed and were able to air evac guys out without too much trouble, mm. and which I think was completely intentional for the enemy. And they were waiting for us to do the ground exfil. Yeah. So we escorted the Chinooks back pretty far. And then we turned back around <laughs> as Apaches and yes. came back to start covering the ground convoy. And as they were convoying out, we were overhead. We were doing our route reconnaissance. So like we'd go, what we typically do when we had a convoy, depending on the number of vehicles, we'd have one aircraft that stayed with the convoy or behind the lead vehicle to, again, like just something very clear to bit to break up who has what part of the 
airspace. And then the other aircraft will go ahead on the route to go and look for like any potential IEDs yep, yep. or enemy position, positions. And we didn't see anything. Um, this convoy was moving. And these are guys who have been out for seven days. Like nothing's happened. They're rolling. And then they come to this one part. I, I remember it being an overpass, but like this is a dirt road. So I'm not saying like an overpass you yeah, see yeah. In, gotcha. in Australia yeah. or the US, yeah. but just like a little bridge. And um, the initiation of this ambush was an RPG to a gunner. Like he took it directly on <sighs> a, a gunner who was out of the turret. So they kick off this ambush. All hell breaks loose on the radios. You guys know what that's like. Mm. Just like when people start screaming, um, you know, it's totally different from when you're doing a deliberate op and you got time hacks and code words and everybody's super calm. Those first moments are just like, holy shit, things are getting crazy. We need air support. Um, what's going on? Who's hitting us? And when you're in the air and this is going on, you're very quickly like trying to get situational awareness, just like the guys on the ground. Yep, but yep. You, you do not want to bother the guys on the ground. Like they got enough to do to just figure out where their friendlies are. So we're, we were just trying so hard to figure out where the bad guys were. And it was a little bit harder. It was daylight. So we didn't have the typical advantage at night. Yeah. Um, we still had our infrared on the Apache. So we could see like thermal imaging, but, but that's only, that's only so good when the enemy is really close. So we couldn't see them at all. And we just, we kept doing these racetrack patterns and we, and we got back lined up as a pair. So like lead and trail formation, we're doing racetracks, trying to pick up the enemy and we just couldn't see them at all. Uh, intense ground fire going on. They have a guy who's a significant casualty. So we're trying to call for uh, medevac. They can't really reach anybody because the comms suck in this valley. So we're trying to like get up to altitude, call out, get situational awareness on the ground. And then eventually, because we couldn't do anything, we just said uh, we had the strongest crew I could put together was on this flight. Mm. The most senior aviators we had, the best pilots and the most senior guy there, he said, hey, this is going to suck. But we need to draw, we need to go down and draw fire away from these guys. They're going to want to take an aircraft out before they kill another soldier. Yeah. So we need them to try to shoot at us before they shoot at these guys anymore. <laughs> and so he was just like, "Hey, just want to make sure everyone's okay doing this uh, for the four of us who are on the flight." And everyone's like, "Fuck yeah, we're going to go down and do this." So we come in low, like we're typically up at a thousand feet, so we're out of most of the small arms fire. Mm -hmm. We came in really low, fifty feet, one behind the other, right over the top of the friendlies, and. I, we talked about this, my, my backseater and I, like as soon as we got out of the aircraft on this day, we talked about this. We were flying over and we felt this like buffeting of the aircraft. Turned out later, we had just been like sprayed by small arms fire underneath. <laughs> it hit our engine, it hit our wow. uh, fuselage, everything. So we felt this and we we're like, oh shit, I think we just took fire. And then we looked out the left and this RPG was like flying past our window. Oh. I think oh, every time I talk about it, it gets, it gets closer. Like, oh yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. five feet away. You know, it was probably... <laughs> yeah. Significantly far away, but wow. my backseater Sean and I, we joked that it, it felt like a like an Acme rocket from oh, yeah, uh, like yeah. Wiley, Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. <laughs> like an Acme rocket. <laughs> yeah. So like we could we could see the flame like the bright spot on the back of it, the warhead moving. It felt like slow motion. Both of us said this as we got out, as though time had stopped. I could hear my my six month old son babbling in my ear. Yeah. Um, so, like, it, it was an intense moment that I still remember from that. So, yeah, we we took small arms fire there. We took these RPG um, misses, thankfully. Now, Apaches had been hit in 
in combat with RPGs and survived it. Like from Operation Anaconda early in the war, they had taken some direct hits. So I think we could have sustained it. Like if this thing had airburst, I don't know what would have happened, but we, we weren't as concerned. Yeah. We just didn't want to go down there. Like an Apache going down there would be horrible oh, trying God. to get it out yeah. and how far away we were. So we kept trying to do reattack patterns. The only shots we got off were the backseaters taking these off angle um, shots with the 30 mil because we just couldn't see these guys on the ground. It was so, so frustrating. But we flew we flew that day for probably 10 hours, which is hard to do because you can only fly for up to like eight hours max during daytime. At night, it gets significantly shorter because of, of the strain it puts on you. Yep. Um, and we had to get extensions, keep flying. And we finally got back that night. Um, we had to refuel en route. And this story, I, I love telling, it was just so embarrassing for me. But uh, <laughs> We, we refuel. My backseater's like, hey, why don't you hop out, check if we got shot, like see if there's any bullet holes, anything leaky. So when we refuel, we still have the power on, everything's going. Yep. So I, I disconnect from the audio. I hop out, I jump down, I'm looking around, I hop back in. I'm like, Sean, nothing, man, we're good. <laughs> we take off, fly back to our main base, we land, and then we shut the aircraft down. So there's no more pressure running through the system. And we get out and there's just like, Holes. Oil <laughs> everywhere coming out of holes <laughs> in the aircraft. And he's like, hey, sir, so we didn't get shot, huh? What, what's all this shit? <laughs> so, yeah, like the, the crew chiefs came over and it's just hard to see. Like it's, you know, course, olive yeah. drab camo yeah. with a black hole in it that's really small. And I had never had to look for this. And so they were extracting rounds. They pulled a round out of our fuel cell, which is pretty cool. Like these fuel cells were designed to seal the yep. way that they were they, oh, they were yeah. made. That's cool. So a round that's... went in, did not make it to the to the fuel itself. So there was not, you didn't have like the explosion, the air and combustion that was required. So just like it was supposed to do, it stopped this round and we pulled it out. I've still got it today. That's like cool. the little the little round itself. That's that's awesome. Um and then we um we would often carry US flags on board. Uh, uh, Matt, I'm assuming you guys did the same if you took Australian flags out on patrol with yep. you to give to people. Yep. So we'd fly these things around like soldiers would give them to us and ask if we could take them out and we would so we flew one around that day, a couple. And when we landed, we went back and asked these guys who gave them to us. We were like, hey, would you mind if we kept these? Like, this was a horrible day for us. We nearly died. Um, you know, it would mean a lot if we could keep that. So we also got to keep those as little mementos from that fun day for us. Hectic. What a... <laughs> oh, no. With... With the aircraft taking so much gunfire, like what is the extent? Like obviously, it hit the undercarriage. It didn't hit like the actual side of the fu fuselage. Yeah, no, it kind of did. It kind of got up into um, like like this ball. area. Yeah, oh, yep. like okay. we, we got the gear rattled here yep. down the tail. Yeah, so it could hit avionics and it could still survive. There's a lot of um, redundancy on board, so if something got hit, it could transfer power to something else. I one of the guys in my unit. When I was in Germany, who had just come back from Iraq, he got shot through the canopy in his neck and he lived. Holy um, shit. But yeah, it's like the canopy is supposed to be reinforced and a small arm round went through that. Yeah, right. That's crazy. So you so, just never know with bullets. Yeah, no, exactly right. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Um, so how many deployments did you do to Afghanistan? So I only did one in seven and a half years, which is so rare. Yeah. And it was really, it was that first unit in Germany that just, they weren't deploying. So there was no way to like move myself up in the, in the running. Yep. It's just kind of luck of the draw. And obviously like I should be happy. I didn't go more often. 
than yeah. I did. But yeah. it's really tough when I go talk to guys like Matt. I don't know how many times you've gone, but yeah. talking to guys who've been, I talked to a guy who'd been eighteen. That's it's crazy. Yeah. You know, yeah, like I, yeah. I feel like I didn't do my part. Yeah, we we spoke to Dan Luna, Navy SEAL, and he's been like 15, 20 years. 15 years straight, pretty much. Yeah. And then another Green Beret, a Delta, yeah. uh, Brad, Brad Thomas, Brad Somalia, right through. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It's like, holy Christ, boys. Like, they spent like the majority of their lives as overseas. Just working. Just- and then, so you get back, what year did you... You know, made you get out, discharge. What was the what was the yeah. reason? I, I think I I was I was always going to end up getting out at some point. I love the military. Like, don't get me wrong, but longer term, it wasn't the right fit for me. And I would find that um, I would find the right fit, but I could just tell it wasn't exactly what I wanted. But I didn't really sign up to do twenty years either. Like, I, I didn't go to West Point more often than not. Guys who go to the academies are in it for the long haul. I was not. And I think after the training, and actually when I was in Germany, we lost two guys in a training exercise, like trying to do new types of tactics for Iraq and Afghanistan. We were all learning. And these two guys who were accomplished pilots flew straight into the ground. And that had a serious impact on me. So I think coming out of combat... I just, I was like, look, I'm going to step away from this. And, you know, I, I had a son at that point. So we decided to get out and I just was not prepared for leaving. The- yeah. And, no and I had, a, I had a good, like a really strong degree in the U S like where I went to college, I had picked up an MBA along the way. You know, I, as if anybody should have been successful, it, it would have been. And I took on, I was like, I'll just go to the private sector. I'll make it work out. And like so many vets, it did not work out. For yeah. Me. Yeah. That, yeah. It's, it's, it's not a normal transition, nah. you know, and Unless you've done your time in the military and, you know, you get out, you know, for me, I left, uh, I left in 2009, but you know, the year before I'm in Afghanistan and then I'm on a nightclub door, like three months later, just beating up kids, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) fighting Taliban and beating up kids. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we definitely know exactly how it is. And then, so you fail in the, in the private sector, then you thought, you know what, I'm going to join the CIA, you know? Yeah. Hair, like, I don't know how to talk about the CIA because I don't I'll, know who's I'll, going to I'll come. I'll ask him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, go for it. We've only seen the movies. <laughs> yeah. CIA, Central Intelligence Agency. What is the recruitment process for that? I'm sure there'll be a whole lot of vetting, be a whole lot of like security screening. Did your Tons. did you being a pilot help that or did you being in the in the, the army help? It it probably helped a little bit, not a ton. And, and I will say when I was in flight school, when I was telling you like during the kickoff of these wars and I was like, God, it's going to take me forever to get there. Yeah. I was scrolling the CIA webpage to see if I could get there. If I could, wow. like, maybe I could jump over there and I could get into combat faster, which is also a completely naive because the pipeline for the agency is even longer than the military. Yeah. So yeah, that, that also wasn't going to happen, but I'd always had it in my mind that I would love to have gone into the agency. So I, when I was telling you, I grew up overseas, my dad worked in embassies. He worked with a lot of guys who were in the agency. Like they were friends of ours. Some of them went on to be legends, like conference rooms named after these guys who I, who I actually knew, which was really interesting. So I, I grew up around this atmosphere and I really enjoyed it. Um, looking back growing up in these other countries, I just thought it was so cool. Like being at the embassies was awesome meeting these different people. And the school I went to for college has, it's huge in international relations. So you're also exposed to it there, the foreign service and the, the Intel community. So I'd had it in my, my mind. And when 
yeah, probably three months. And Matt, I don't know how long it took you, but like three months after I got out of the army, I was like, no, <laughs> so this is not right. I was a wreck PTSD that I was not, not going to deal with for years. Yeah. And my wife saw it immediately. She's like, something's wrong with you. And so I just, I have to get back to this mission. So we were living in North Carolina and I said, we are going to go to Washington, DC. We're going to go to the home of all this stuff that I care about. I got a job there. Yeah, also private sector. I put in my applications for the agency and I signed up to go back to grad school to just like whatever I could do to get back into that environment, I yep. would do. So yep. I went for a, a national security studies degree also at Georgetown. And so I was working, I was going through the application process. Um, and then I was also at school and some of my instructors at school were like true CIA legends. Like this guy, Burton Gerber was handling um, Russian assets that, th that they write movies about. Like, yeah. Phenomenal instructors who had lived cool in this. Life. So I was just all day long eating this up. Um, but the process to your original question, Shane, it, I mean, it's long, can take years for years for people. So when you say like this being a pilot help, being a pilot does not help, but having a security clearance already was helpful. Yeah. Right. So there was a little bit of the vetting that didn't have to go on, but you still got to get polygraphed, which is a horrible experience. Um, <laughs> what sort of questions? Like, yeah. What sort of, oh God. Oh, what's just, the worst one? What is your porn up search history? <laughs> oh man. So the thing is they, uh, God, thankfully they can't take, uh, take over any of your devices. Cause then it would get real. But <laughs> you know, they, they, it's all set up in a certain way so that it's a very controlled environment. Yeah. Like they're not throwing curveballs at you. They tell you what they're going to ask you and then they ask you and they watch how you react. <laughs> and I'm a pretty, like people who know me would say like, I'm a pretty straight laced guy. Uh, I've never even smoked a cigarette and they had me breaking down talking about drugs you know, oh, like, no way. but I've never even touched a cigarette guys. And yeah, they're like, yeah. no, 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 no. And like really pushing me hard. And they, you just, the whole process is a mind game. Yeah. Like, like the movies yeah, it's it's a, yeah. <laughs> from the start. Right, yeah. What is the CIA's actual role? Like, cause we all hear about it a lot. They got secret yeah. people throughout the world. Like what is their actual purpose for the United States? You know, what's cool is a lot of people will reach out to me because they're interested in this career and it's hard to talk about it, but yeah. like the CIA's website has job description on it. Oh, okay. They talk well. about what you do. <laughs> are they real? So uh, yeah, legit. <laughs> yeah. Are they, they're awesome. Are, yeah. there, are there jobs that aren't listed there? Of course. There yeah. There would have to. Maybe a couple. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Right, right, 100%. Leave, leave it to that then. But to be fair, they also make TV shows about those. So it's not like they're super secretive, but they're not on the website either. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they have, so they have different roles there. Like I was a collection management officer. So they have, actually, I should say they have analysts. They, ha they have some support roles as well. But like the stuff that most people see in the movie, you got analysts who mainly work at headquarters. Mm -hmm. They're writing these long Intel products. Like what's Russia going to do next? You know, strategically looking at leadership, that sort of thing. And we call that finished intel. Yep. As you guys know, because you've read it. Um, and then they have the ops side of the house, which is what I was on. So that's like the covert clandestine side. That'd be cool. And that's, and the only reason I can, well, obviously I'm talking about it now because I was cleared to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and I had to go through a process to do that, but it's the clandestine side of the house where you have the main, the main effort, kind of like Matt, you guys, the main effort of any military, in my opinion, is the infantry. Yeah. The main effort for the agency are operations officers. So they call them OOs. They're the guys who go out and handle assets. So they go and meet people from different countries. They figure out if they have information that's valuable. 
If they do, they try to recruit them. So basically, we pay them to give us information that's sensitive, and then we report that intel back. And that's raw intel as opposed to finished intel. And that raw intel goes in to create finished intel products. So you've got operations officers, and then I was a collection management officer. So my job was to do what the OOs did. Like I was trained to go and recruit, meet people. But my main role was to connect with people who read Intel on whatever subject I was responsible for and know at any time, like if if the person in the National Security Council needs to know what Russia's next move is, and I cover Russia, yeah. my job is to know every asset that we have available that knows about that topic and know when they're going to be met next and talk to the guy who's going to go meet them and say, hey, Next time you meet this dude, if you only have 10 minutes because something's going on, you have to ask these two questions, basically. And then when they come back, we'd draft that report, whatever information they got back, we draft it up. And I was almost like an editor at a newspaper. Mm -hmm. So like the journalist gets a story, comes back, and the editor is this dick that makes them rewrite it and like (laughs) checks their grammar. But also like, do we have the right stuff in here up front? Can we cut anything because it's not important? A little bit of a back and forth. And then we send that out to the Intel community as a base. So so I would do that. If anybody's seen like Zero Dark 30, you know, tracking Bin Laden, there's a targeter role, which is awesome. These are people who are tracking down and putting yeah. bad guys on the X or trying to figure out where a bad guy is so they can either put them on the X or get an ops officer in a place to meet them, right? So it looks natural. Yeah. So like those are some of the roles you'll you'll see. And again, like you could just go apply for them. And what I think still is one of the coolest are the paramilitary ops guys that you may have worked with who come from like some of the tier one and tier two units mm-hmm. and they're out there. Um, collecting intel in really difficult places, training up different forces. It, to me, like that was just the coolest place to be. So earlier I said the military wasn't the perfect spot for me. The agency was. Like I just loved being in that every day. The bureaucracy didn't even yeah. like everything I liked about That's that. That's so place. cool. Will Will yeah. the CIA be listening to this and after the podcast? God, they'll probably they check it. I reckon they will. Yeah, hundred percent. Sign us up. Sign us up, please. If yeah, you're listening. <laughs> next, what's follows on my next question, Marty? Do they take foreign people, foreigners, or do they only take U.S. sits? U.S. set. Yeah. yeah, right. Well, we'll have to but come man, over you tomorrow. Guys got a fr- you guys got a first-rate uh, Intel yeah. service as well, man. ASIO and ASIS. Oh, ASIO. Oh, yeah. yeah, but like, I don't like. We don't hear anything about them. Yeah, you know, like, they don't make movies about that. I can guarantee you, though, <laughs> ASIO have probably tuned into a podcast of ours for sure. Can guarantee it because like we've like chatted to SAS and Commandos yep. for sure. They would have for sure. Yep. So if you're out there. The boys in Canberra down in basement five, you know, you bloody, we're after you. We're after you. <laughs> no joke. They're, they're like, they're the best. Yeah. They're, they're up there with anyone else. Yeah. Cool. For sure. That's cool. Uh, so how, how long did you spend as a CIA uh, officer? Operative. Operative. Yeah. Operative. Yeah. Yep. Officer. Officer, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Eight eight years. Did so you have a cool badge? Do you have a cool badge as well? No. There's you, gotta be like as, it's like in the movie. So when they flip you, out their wallet, yeah. do you ever come like home CIA, to your wife right? be like CIA? Did she even know or was it just a is it a oh, secret? Yeah. No, yeah. but there were a lot of people who didn't tell their spouses which I've heard about this, yeah. Like I'll meet the parents. I think is a bad fuckers. idea. <laughs> bad idea. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, that's. A I don't know. Are you guys disaster. married or? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I'm yeah. Single. They'll okay. find it. They find out anyway. They'll they find will out. find out anything. Yeah, that's it. 
We're not going to hide that from. <laughs> they are, yeah, it's all, yeah. Well, they call it premonitions. Is that they call? Oh, it? Are they call? I don't know. Stalking, we call that. <laughs> yeah, no, nosy women. So you spent eight eight years in the CIA. Uh, was eight years. Yep. Eight years. Is it? Is there anything absolutely just crazy? Yeah, there. I mean, there were a couple times. Of course, you can't talk about but, them. But uh, no, yeah. I know. But yeah, yeah. you're right. Well, I, but home, I do wish home affairs or overseas. Both. So I did yeah. both. Oh, and with I do stash. wish that I <laughs> the could. The glasses yeah. and the nose. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Disguises. Everything. I, I wish that there were stories that I could talk about with other people, not just mine. Yeah. Like we would sit around, but they, actually the agency is really good at best. The military is all right. Private sector is terrible when it comes to passing down. War like, stories. Yeah. War stories, yeah. oral knowledge. They're really good about it. Like from the time you start training, you just sit there and listen to these people in all the secure spaces talk about, hey, when I was in this country during this coup, here's what went went down. When we ran this op against this country, here's how we did. It's so interesting to hear. That like they're be, really good about it. That'd be cool. um, but there are moments, like part of the reason I wanted to do Combat Story as a podcast was to pull out those moments that people have in the military Yeah, that like, I think we might call them like pinch moments. Like, holy crap, this is awesome. I can't believe I get to do this. Like, like you're flying in on a gun run or you're jumping out of a plane for you guys. Um, you know, we had moments like that. So a briefcase full of cash rolling around some yeah. crazy ass place in this world that you never thought you'd be in a rental car with some weird music on in the background and you're stopped because of goats crossing the road and <laughs> you're trying to make sure nobody's following you. Yeah. Oh, this is getting exciting. Like, I know this is, yeah. All cool. those things just to me, at least I was like, I could do this all day, every yeah. day. And, and obviously like you, know, you can't neither confirm or deny, but I'm sure you had different uh, passports and IDs and. That's possible. Yeah. Possible. <laughs> if you if you could, what was your name? <laughs> Maverick? I can't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Roger. All right. okay. Hypothetically, yeah. even if I had one, <laughs> could not. Yeah. Well, but it would be good if it was one. <laughs> what about you, Matt? What, what, what name would you have? I don't know. I'll have to think about this one. I'd have David Hammersmith. <laughs> David Hammersmith. He grew up Is that out. from a movie? No, I made it up ages ago because years ago I had my Facebook name as Zingerberger, right? And um, people were like, oh, Shane, what do you have? You have face Facebook? I said, no, 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 I don't. You know. Anyway, so then I made up another another account with that name. I don't know where the name came from. I made it up, but I've always thought if I had to change names, it would be that name. Yeah, right. And I'll be from outback New South Wales. I was just a uh, plumber from outback New South Wales. Yeah, I, 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 I <laughs> David Amersmith, the plumber from Ningen. I do use I do use Cameron Poe. Nicol- oh, from uh, Conair. <laughs> From, well, I was uh, going to say Star Wars. No, uh, Nicholas Cage when he's uh, Conor. Yeah. God, that's a great movie. Cameron Poe. It's a good film. <laughs> well, we got off track a little bit. Um, no. So you spent eight years and then you're just like, that's enough. Enough uh, wearing fake moustaches. Sorry, and- did you have to do training like another like, boot camp there? Like another, like, it's like- camp, camp Perry. Maybe. The farm. Um, yeah, so yeah maybe. maybe. It's the farm. It's we, have, the farm. we have it up now on bloody Google, so you can't yeah. lie to us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's right. So it, it is, it's the farm. There's a movies about it. There's movies about the- it. I will say, I think one of the misconceptions is that there's a physical aspect to it and there's not. Like, okay. I mean, flight school had almost no physical aspect as pilots. Like, you have a lot of heavy pilots, as you guys are probably yeah. well aware and have yeah. seen. You got all kinds of shapes and sizes for uh, the agent. Yeah. Um, they do try to give you some training depending on where you go in the world for kind of like outdoor stuff and like land navigation, um, interrogation. Interrogation. That, and we used to do SEER training, you know, like I'm sure you guys have done for the military where, you know, it's pretty rough. You know, you're out on your own learning to kill chickens and rabbits and yeah. that sort of thing and eat them. Um, the one that we did for the agency was incredibly good. Like it was probably the best I'd ever done. 
and oh. including the air interrogation training was bar none. Um, really real world. Whoa, I was boy. actually surprised. A lot of the guys who I was with who have done prior military service, we yep. would talk about this. Like maybe unless you were in a tier one unit, uh, the the training usually had such a safety aspect that it wasn't as hard as combat was going to be. The training in the agency really had no gloves on. Like it was intense, um, really well thought out, very real work, like very much lessons learned from what was going on in the field at that time. So like the interrogation techniques they'd throw on you, they would break you down. They knew how to break you. You learned so much from it. The surveillance classes you took, there are different levels of those. And those can get physical in terms of a little bit physical, not really. Like people, people like have a an ankle sprain because they've been walking too much, but like <laughs> learning how to do it, the mental aspect, getting fatigued and nobody cares about crew rest. Like you're a pilot. Yeah. Like you could be driving a car with very little sleep, trying to, trying to remember license plates and that sort of thing to know if somebody has been following you. Um, so you do all of that type of training and you learn how to, how to meet and ingratiate yourself with different, yeah. I guess. Like there's a lot of emphasis put on that, but there's not the physical side that you see in- Isn't it? Oh. Yeah, right. It, like just touching on the interrogation side of things, yeah. again, we'll go back to the movies because that's all we see. Waterboard. Waterboarding <laughs> and electrocution. Bam, up fingernails. Yeah, like 12 volt batteries on their nipples and stuff. <laughs> None of that happens. That's funny. None of that. that. <laughs> None of that. Have you ever been asked to use your uh, piloting skills to fly any helos for the CI? Yeah. No, I mean, I wish that that was possible. Any of the aviation stuff that they do is like, they would never take somebody with my amount of flight hours. Like I flew for seven years, but that's nothing compared to what a lot of guys come out with. So they, they're looking for real pilots doing that. You are a real pilot. Yeah. No, I know, but not Not when you get around other pilots and they're like, Oh, how many hours do you have? What did you fly? You know, it's quick to see who's been around a long time. Yeah. That's uh, so that, yeah. So you do eight years in the CIA. So you did seven years in the, how many years in the military? How many years in the army? Yeah. Seven and a half. Yeah. Seven, seven and a half. And then you do eight years as an operative uh, officer. And then you get out. What made you leave the CIA? Like a dream job. You got burnt. No, I wish it was that. No, we just, I, I have three sons. Uh, one of them had moved 11 times by the time he was 12. Like you're just constantly <laughs> yeah. on, the, on the go oh, wow. with the military and the agency. My wife has a real job. So when you live in other countries <laughs> and you move every two years, not easy to find work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I it was huff as hell to leave, but it, it was the right decision. The family, the only thing I liked more than that job was her. Yeah. So, um, so we got out and we tried to find a place where we could both find meaningful work. So we ended up in Silicon. Um, so I was recruited out of the agency to run an Intel team uh, at Google. And yeah. now I, I work at another big tech company. Yeah. But I should say, I guess there's one thing. My last assignment with the agency, I was at what we call our Center for Cyber Intelligence. So I was like completely immersed in cyber for a couple of years, gotcha. going after like the worst cyber threat actors in the yep, world. Yep. And so I really honed a lot of my cyber skills that I never really needed until I got to the agency. And even there, I was working military, you know, politics, counter-intel, counter-terrorism, and some cyber. But my last two years, I was full-on cyber, picked up a lot of certifications for ethical hacking, pen testing, the tools people use. So I was pretty well situated to move into the private sector for that. Yeah. So I 
I will say I learned a hell of a lot from my transition from the military and I wasn't going to make that mistake. Yeah, no, well, you definitely did, especially working for Google and obviously the tech company you're working for now. Like, that's pretty That's, that's pretty, pretty cool, doing that stuff too. Oh, just yeah. wondering, you know, actually, I just I got an email from Google this morning, actually, about some of my <laughs> passwords were hacked from some app. I don't know. It's crazy. And actually, it's funny we say that because my my bank card literally just got uh, skimmed as well. So. Someone oh. went to someone went to KFC like five times. They're hungry. The pol- <laughs> oh, I do like KFC. The, the lady's like, "I saw it wasn't you." I'm like, oh, no, I can tell you for a fact, I do love KFC, but I wasn't in Sydney. It was way too far oh. away. Yeah. So, but I'm sure you'd see all that. Like that's part of. Is is that essentially what you're doing now? Like just uh, cyber. Yeah, tech? I might. If you guys don't mind taking a second, because go for it. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Let me let me put one more question to you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why yeah. did you, Why did you call your podcast Zero Limit? Good question. Um, Matt, essentially, and then, and then I'll circle back to, my, to yeah. your question. Yeah, of course. Well, Zero Limits is just because of the attitude you give that Zero Limits attitude to life. So there is no no limit at all. I wanted to call it No Limits, but there's, there's no limitation too many of them. on yourself. No limitations. It was just. <laughs> But Send like we, we brainstormed for about I reckon two months, like can't we like some some of the names were like Matt and Shane, Grey and Green, like Grey being the Navy, Green being the Army, um, just like just all these other like ship gimmicky names. Yeah. And then uh, we come up with like something about no limits and fucking yeah, I don't know, just it came up and yeah. we're just like boom, boom, that's it, that's the wrap. Because <laughs> we're, we're not just sticking with the military theme. I work for Nitro Circus, so we've had a cup couple of uh, extreme athletes come on board as well and tell their stories. So. The last 40 ep- episodes have been military. They have been military. Yeah, the last 40 have been military because it's a lot easier to connect with them. Uh, but we're going to get some more athletes on as well and just diversify. But again, it was just the whole zero limit, just yeah. motivational. And some of the guys we have spoke to um, – Chris Van Sant, for instance, uh, he was saying when they – sorry, did he, he went to Lone, Lone Survivor um, battle they went on. The mission. Which one? Was, no, was that he, him? He was Saddam. Saddam. Who was the – Yeah. Oh, I know. Tony, Tony, uh, Tony Brooks. Tony Brooks. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony yeah. Brooks said when he was yeah. climbing up the mountain yep. uh, for when they got um, infield, he goes, we're trying to climb this mountain, and he goes, we, we didn't quit. He goes, I looked over to the guys, we just kept sliding back down the mountain. I was like, shit, you yeah. know? And that's like, that just like, is, is our is our whole top yeah, title the best, you know? He just, just did yeah. not give up. Shit. So, I, yeah. So, the, the reason I ask is, I, I feel like you guys are hustlers, um, which I think is the common thread here, because you didn't have to do this podcast. You could go live your lives and you do this, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I feel like I'm in a similar boat where I always want to have something going on. Um, so, the other thing that I'm doing now, is, and this is just on my own time, what I fell into at Google was this industry called trust and safety, which... I never heard of. Most people have not, but every huge tech company has. Every okay, and it's very much like the work you do in the military and the intel community, where your whole job is not really stopping like a, a zero day cyber hack. It's more stopping people from doing misinformation, stopping terrorists from recruiting on these platforms, stopping pedophiles from getting access to children, like all the stuff we always did, like disrupting bad actors and helping good people. And I just completely stumbled into, recruited into, and I knew within date that this is would be such a good transition for people in the military, but no one's ever this, unless you're in Silicon Valley, where it's a huge, there's probably 10,000 jobs yep. around the world for this um, at all these huge tech companies. And you don't have to know how to code. You get paid tech company salaries, like all the perks. So I, I probably have two calls every week for the past three years 
with vets, former government, former Intel, who were like, hey, tell me about this trust. So I just put together a website and I throw out a newsletter every day uh, on this thing. I call it the Trust and Safety Institute. So it's trustsafetyinstitute.com. There's a newsletter that goes out every day with like everything that's happening in the industry, probably like 15 stories. It's got all the jobs that are coming out that day. Um, it's got all the policies that these different companies have. And in two weeks, it'll have courses for yeah, people right. to go look at. I was just yeah. about to ask that. So what sort of qualifications or courses do you actually need for this one? They love... So the reason I made this is there is no training program in the world for this. So literally when I was at Google, like one of the biggest companies ever that has thousands of people doing this, every time I onboarded someone new, it was 100% on the job. There's no private yeah. program you could go to. There's no college degree for it. Nice. It's Wow. I equate it to cybersecurity in 19, like when everybody was learning about it and now you've got entire industries built around. So we're rolling out courses to teach people about like the bedrock aspects of it. In two weeks, they'll be out um, and it'll be free to people who are transitioning out of the military, out of the Intel community. Oh, cool. Um, and like you guys know what it's like when you come out of the military and you have not found the right path. Yeah. Like I distinctly remember just feeling like completely destroyed. Like I... I'd done so much in the military. I had so much to look forward to. And then all of a sudden, like I'm low man on the totem pole. I'm in an area I don't understand. I'm doing work I don't really care about. And by the way, all the guys I serve with are still fighting the fight. So I felt like this is as close as you're going to get to like you're going up against Al Qaeda here, yeah. just in a different domain. Like you're going up against the Russian government, throwing misinfo around all day long, it's same threat actors, protecting kids, your own families. Um, so it's a great fit for people who have our background. So to your point, like there's no qualifications because there's no industry. Like most people have five years of experience at the moment. Yeah. So it's a job you don't need any qualifications for, but there's thousands of jobs for it. Is that what you're saying? And Tens of thousands of jobs. All over the world? Nobody, or here in the, just yeah, in the US? all okay. over the world. All Europe, different companies? Yep. All these big companies. I mean, I don't know about yeah. Twitter with Elon. Ooh. He might get rid of this because he doesn't care about policing this stuff anymore. How good is Twitter going to be? We'll see. It's going to be loose. Trump's going to be back. That's for what's sure. The, uh, what's, <laughs> the, what's the salary range for someone starting off? Should you just say, if I wanted to start tomorrow, I don't have any qualification whatsoever. Like, What would be the US, US dollar? Yeah. Yeah, I think, and some of these don't even require a college degree, but I would say most in the US, like most jobs do. So if you have a college degree, you've done some work before, you're probably looking at 150K. Holy smokes. And that in the but US is absolutely huge it, money. That's massive. That, that's, yeah. I mean, that's big in the US. I mean, yeah, big, that's yeah, big in the US. In Australia. Then, that's like a million dollars Australian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the other thing that you get that I talk to guys about this all the time, because when you, I don't, it's probably like this in Australia. A lot of the jobs you end up gravitating towards are like government contracting or government security type roles where you have a salary. Mm. In tech, you have like a salary. You get bonuses. You also have equity. You get stock in the company, which is huge. And nobody knows about it. Like you get a lot of money on top of that in terms of stock, which also gives you a vested interest in seeing the company do well. So how you operate and make decisions about your budget and headcount and, and how you're working all factors in because if you drive the stock price up, you also stand to gain. Yeah. It's cool. It's, I would just say like, I, I'm shamelessly plugging this, but it's truly no, it's for good. people who are about to go through what a lot of us have already done and maybe giving them a chance to do it right from the outset. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely put up all this on our social stuff. I actually right, find this absolutely cool as. Huh? You're interested. 
Shane's interested. Like I've, he's just thinking so, far out. Yeah, man. Little story about me, Ron. <laughs> when I left the Navy five years ago this June, um, I started plumbing and then I hated that. And then I was just like lost. And I, I told this before another another cast. And I was just hard to find a job, you know, that I actually liked. You know, I was just like, we'll try this out for a month. We'll try this. You know, it wasn't wasn't the money, but it was just like the people I was working with, the actual job itself. Um, and now that I'm a trainee train driver, you know, it's, it's fucking cool. It's awesome. But I still think awesome. that's a phase as well. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> Could be. But um, who knows? You might move to the US. Yeah, girls, yeah. I'll be over there soon. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, look, there's, I think it's great for, for vets as well. You know, they can go, well, I don't need any qualifications. Because if you spent, just say, 20 years as like an infantry soldier here in the Australian Defence Force, what do you come out with, Matt? Nothing. You nothing. Nothing at all. I, I know, guys. Yeah. It's it got worse too, like, especially in the, <laughs> yeah. you know, when I was looking at getting out, they had all these transitional courses that give you certificates to, you know, keep you going in the civilian world, but they retracted, uh, we, um, withdrew them all, so it made you stay in. They're just like, yeah. oh, well, you get nothing now. You can either become yeah. a security guard or a taxi driver, so I chose security. <laughs> did, you, did you come out with a uh, civilian qualification to fly helos? Yeah. I, I do have that, but that was never really what I was going to do. And, and actually, I didn't even mention this. I, did, I didn't love flying either. There were a lot of guys of who went aviation <laughs> because they just always dreamed of flying. For me, it was it was this like, I'm going to be real close supporting the guy on the ground. It'll be in my family's footsteps, you know, yeah. connect me closer with my father. It, it was more about that. I never really enjoyed it. I love, I, I enjoy being in combat. Like when you're yeah, on a gun run, course, yeah. that is cool. Yeah. Flying from point A to point B is not very yeah. for me. For me, it's not. Yeah. It's pretty dangerous too, helicopters. It, you know, and you've yeah. seen it over, especially your time in Afghanistan. We've learned a couple, I've lost a couple of mates just due to helicopter crashes and it's just, yeah. they're just, I don't know, they're terrible. They are cool though. They are cool. They are super cool. Have you ever so flown a Blackhawk? Uh, or have you, have you ever flown another craft since the Army? Not since the Army. No. I mean, oh, wow. I've flown in different aircraft, oh, you no, actually but not physically the on the control. Wow. No. Yeah. That's sadly. Um, I have one little question though. It's completely off track. Obviously, yeah. uh, Kobe Bryant was killed in a helicopter crash. Oh. What is your thoughts on that? On that crash, because obviously all that conspiracy about it, and they said, was it just the pilot just got disorientated? And is that what you think? I, yeah, I, I do. I mean, honestly, when you're in aviation long enough, it's funny because I grew up hearing this all the time from my old man as a pilot. Yeah, it's um, every time you make a make a mistake, I'd hear like. It's pilot error. And we always heard that pilot error, this pilot error. The two guys who I was telling you about who died in this training accident. Yep. Uh, one thing that sucks about aviation is everything you do is recorded. So we listened to the tape of these guys dying, oh, like hundred guys in a room listening to the recording. Like people are crying as it's happening. Cause like, you know, these, and you're hearing them talk through and you yeah. know, in two minutes they're about to die. And even in that case, it's pilot error. Like they're just, they're fixated on a target on a gun run. It's at night. They're going in. They haven't done this very often and they just didn't pull up in time and they flew into the group. Like it wasn't a mechanical failure. It rarely is. It One of the other guys I served with in Afghanistan, he died um, in 2015 in Korea. He flew into power lines. Very common for helicopters yeah. to fly into power lines or transmission poles or that sort of thing. You just, mm. you think you'd see them. You don't like you're you're looking at so many things. Yeah. So in that case, I believe it was weather related, like yeah. bad weather. They probably shouldn't have gone, kind of going through some hills. Super common. The month before I got to Afghanistan, two Apaches flew into the side of a hill. Oh. Um, the guys lived, 
but bad weather just hit the side just, of the mountain. Yeah. That's I went to cool. I went to the, the crash site last year. Did uh, you? Yeah, I went for a hike up there. Yeah, went for a hike. I, I spent a lot of time in the US, so I actually got a flight. I'll be back there. In, uh, I fly at the end of the month. I'll be there for a couple of months. No way. Where are you going? Uh, I work for Nitro Circus, so we'll be everywhere. So, yeah, if you're definitely around, I'd love to catch motorbike up. Motorbike test rider. Yeah, I'm a motorbike test rider. <laughs> no, I'm, <not>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm way yeah, too man. fat and tall. Hit me up. Yeah. All right. Well, we've been talking for a good hour and 30 minutes, and it's been super cool, and I love the whole CIA side of things because it's just such a Ominous. So more of it. Is, there is. Obviously, we can't talk obviously about you can't talk it. about yeah. it, and it's just such an ominous job. Like you, all you ever see on the TV is CIA this and CIA that, and they killed JFK and riddle me this, <laughs> all this type of stuff. It's crazy. Riddle me this, Brian. Is there anyone that you worked with that was like Stan Smith off American Dad? <laughs> And do they have a pet alien and a German-speaking goldfish? No. Yeah. No. Are aliens real? Uh, no, I don't think so. But I wasn't there when they declassified a lot of that stuff, so I'm not 100%. Yeah, right. Um, I will say, like, there are some things, there are books that have been written about the agency that are incredibly accurate. Oh. So there, one of my buddies just told me about one the other day, another guy who I'd served with. It's called Damascus Station. It's written by a former CIA officer. I have no idea how they allowed him to publish it because yeah, right. it, it goes in depth. I mean, it's not a memoir. It's fiction, but it may as well still? be real life. Is he alive still? Oh, yeah. He's young. He's he's like 38. To me, that's young. Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. Um, so, yeah, like it's very modern day. When, when you read about it going into like a, a station, which is our offices, I, I mean, he gives the atmospherics to a T. Wow. The way we write cables. And, um, I often everything. tell people when they ask me, like when, when guys are trying to look at this career, um, blanket on the name, there's a movie with, um, you guys Damon. may have to edit this part just so I can get that right. It, it's surprising that this is so accurate. It's with Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, uh, I've seen uh, her other stuff on Google. <laughs> <laughs> we all have, haven't we? Red Sparrow. Oh. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Red yeah. Sparrow, kind of a weird vibe to it, but the book is incredibly accurate to the way Russian spies to, to the to the life of an ops officer Holy overseas, snakes. like working in Moscow, working in another European country, working with headquarters, all of that. I got a question with that, Ryan. I got my hand yeah. raised in the video. You said <laughs> it's incredibly accurate. Is it accurate to the T when she's having sex on the table in front of all the students? <laughs> well, that happens in the <laughs> Russian. That's in the Russian side of the house. Oh, sorry. So. Okay. I, so you got to interview somebody from uh, KGB or SBR. Yeah, I think that might be a bit well, hard let me at the know moment. when you do that. I think, yeah. I think they're a little, little, little bit busy. They're a little bit occupied at the yeah. moment. Getting smashed by yeah. javelins. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> mate, for our guests, we've got uh, two final questions. And uh, one of those questions is, you know, what advice can you give to people to uh, keep on keeping on and complete their goals? And just, you know, like yourself, you know, you transition from the defense, uh, from the uh, army you found a bit of a, a downward slope. You're like, buddy, I don't know what I want to do. And then you got straight back into it and become a CIA officer. And now you're making squillions, being a tech guru. And owns a company of trust and safety yeah. institute of America. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I think number one, I don't have this solved. I still wrestle with this where my wife's like, you need to just be happy with where you're at. And that's why I was asking you about the name of your podcast. Cause I felt like, um, we probably have a lot of this in our blood in common, like yeah. wanting to do more and not rest. But I would say to these people, and this is something that I should have learned in the army. If, 
if I were more self-aware at the time, but I really saw when I was going through training at the agency that when you're having these troubles, whatever it is, when you're having difficulties, I'm not just talking PTSD, but just like in general, like career search, surface them to other people, resist the urge to keep them inside and just talk about them with someone else. Like whoever it is you trust, um, just raise them with people. And the reason I say it, when I was at the farm, we had one guy, we were with him for a long time together, eight of us in this room. Like you become very tight and you just get crushed day in and day out mentally. And we just thought this guy was going to kill it. And on the very last day, very last, he got cut from the mic. Um, and we were all like, how did that happen? And the instructors told us like he had trouble throughout the course and he never said anything. So when we're commiserating and like uh-huh. trying to get lessons learned and ideas, this dude didn't say a damn thing and we all could have helped. Yeah. So like to go through that many months pain and then to miss it and, and it changes your whole career trajectory. Like if you don't make it through that, it completely limits what you. So I would just say like surface those things um, when they come up, don't keep them inside. And then the other part there, which I suck at. And every time I do this, I feel better about it. And so I would just say like, don't be like, um, try to stay connected with these people that you grew up with, whether they're from school or the military or whatever. Like you probably got to be the one to reach out, but do it. Like I've never reached out to someone and not come away with both of us being like, hell yeah, we should do that more often. Yeah. And um, the the most the most watched podcast I ever did with John Shrek McPhee. That's advice he gave me, and he's like, "I'm not great at it either, but I'll pick up the phone and just call somebody out of the." And he's right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's reconnecting. And that was the whole point of this podcast is to reconnect, especially with yep. veterans, like minded people, like like yourself. We just have that yep. different drive, and I don't know, we're just built different. Yep. And it's great are. to reconnect with the same people. Yeah, uh, we sort of know what you're going to do for the future, but can you tell us what you have planned? In- until you're, yeah. are you going to still keep working for your current place right now, or are you going to put all your time and money into trust? And- I think if, like, if I won the lottery tomorrow, mm-hmm. I would do my podcast full time. I would just go all in. I'd meet people in person. Like, I'd be sitting there in Australia with you guys right now. hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, um, that'd be cool. Like that'd I, be cool. I just get so much energy, positivity. Like, there's a lot of negative trolling that goes on, no matter what. Yeah, we get it. We get it. You guys know. Yeah. But completely outweighed by the people who reach out and they're like, "Hey, completely changed my life. I look at things a different way. I've learned from this. Yeah, Thank you happens. so much. I'm yeah, sure you yeah. guys get it too. We get the exact yeah. same thing. Yeah. yeah, it's great. It's it's such it a good feels feeling. good, eh? It, it's it's a, a good it sounds feeling. silly, but it's like it is a good feeling. You're like, oh fuck, I've just I've helped helped someone today. Yeah. And they listen to our gibberish too, which is crazy. Which is, which is, I know. Why? Yeah, I, yeah, I know. One of the guys, one of the guys <laughs> I'm interviewing in uh, in May, amazing, amazing guy, uh, Navy SEAL astronaut. Um, when I was talking to him prepping, he said, Hey, uh, is somebody actually going to listen to this? Like, are you going to cut it down to 20 minutes? Or are they going to listen to two hours? It's like, they're going to listen to two hours. Yeah. Like, they just enjoy it. Yeah. Is yeah, that like, that Asian kid, Ryan? The, no. no. No, not Johnny Kim. Jo- yeah. Oh, boy. I was going to say, it's like, so how many astronaut Navy SEALs are there? Johnny Kim. Exactly. Has, exactly. <laughs> He's got At a least story. Two. That Johnny Kim has a story. Was he incredible? Was SEAL, astronaut, now Man, doctor. his dad was murdered like in his house by the police when he was a kid and yeah, then he became a SEAL, then a doctor, then yeah. – now he's fucking an astronaut. No, he's now he's a do- doctor. Was he Is SEAL, he doctor? astronaut, doctor? No, he's an astronaut now. Astronaut. SEAL, doctor, astronaut. Yeah. 
What's next? Gar- garbage man. He's like his buddy Johnny Sins. <laughs> Johnny, <laughs> all these jobs. But yeah, no, we we know exactly what it's like with the podcast. It's it is we love it. Like we honestly like you were you know stressing about us getting up at five thirty doing a podcast. We we do it all the time. Especially it's real hard for us because we have to do it <laughs> I all know. the time. It's tough the, for you guys with the Americans. We just have to like we're we're up at five four thirty and yeah. we get in get it done and That's we it. absolutely love it. We actually got a couple of good guests for you that I think you should get on. One of them is uh, Corey Jones and uh, Troy Knight. And those Rob, two boys you need to speak to. The awesome. most recent one we just had on, Ryan, is- Three hours um, long, that podcast, with Rob Langdon. Rob Langdon was in a Kabul yeah. jail for uh, seven years. He yeah. was Australian just under 14 years. Yeah, I'll send you a message with their with their uh, socials. But definitely those three are your, your Australian boys you need to talk to. They were cool That's those. awesome. They, all, they all, all know each other as well. So uh, robbers, infantry, then private security contractor, shot someone in Kabul, went to jail for seven years. Corey was a commando oh. that hung out with Troy Knight. Troy Knight was a Australian Air Force JTAC. And Corey's got some That's absolute awesome. war stories and yeah. he, he killed a donkey by accident too. <laughs> it's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Uh, I, I took out a herd of deer one time in Germany on a gunnery exercise. Oh, we were trying to, we were trying to squeeze a 30 mil shot out while we were banking away from a target because it was our top gun competition. And so everybody wants to win this thing. And so we're banking and I probably shouldn't have taken the shot, but I pulled the trigger and so it like sprays rounds wow. that land probably 50 meters apart. And there are a bunch of ants there. Oh no. So I, you, I know the feeling. Did you go pick them up and eat them? No, no. that's downrange, man. Yeah. We'll just leave that for the, the locals. <laughs> it's like Black Hawk down. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, yeah. A- again, uh, super appreciate you coming. I know you've got an absolute crazy schedule with your podcast because you're pumping our podcast like it's just non-stop so uh, are you guys dude. what are you at 50 uh well, 40, 40 you'll be 40 48, 48 yeah 47 48 I yeah think yeah we we, we we do one a week um yep. and we know exactly what the grind is like it's it's no people think it's easy it's not easy no. um but again you're the reason why we started ours and um Man. again Super appreciate you coming on and getting back to me and uh, make good luck for the future. Likewise, fellas. And definitely if you're out on the West Coast here, hit me up. We'll 100%. 100% we will. Awesome, mate. Thanks, well, fellas. Thanks, thanks for that anyway. Cheers, Rod. Thanks, buddy. All right. Take care. Shane, how about that one? He was he was cool dude. He was super cool. Doing what I found funny, he, he didn't even like flying. He didn't even love it. Yeah, I know. And being an Apache pilot, that's just next level. And obviously that, the, he was that, first. Uh, he finished first in his, in his class. Yeah. Like Top Gun, yeah, and you got to, you get to choose. He said there was only two Apaches, and obviously the top two got to choose. And you find that hard to believe, though. In the whole of America, for that yearly intake, there's only two spare spots for, for a gunship. Yeah, it, it was crazy because, like in Afghanistan, we just knew how not many Apaches were kicking around. Yeah. They'll literally be out doing another job, or you know, doing a medevac, or you know, I suppose they're not they're not bloody cheap, are they? No, they're definitely but not cheap. Black Hawks, you know, there's what. Zoops. Zillion of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> even, but even even though we're just still, I guess I don't know. But you know what a story. Yeah. He. Um, he was ultra good. Yeah, and his dad was obviously a pilot as well, and he just wanted to become a pilot. You yeah. know, just to it's almost like the bloodline continue yeah. on in the theme of the bloodline. Could you imagine being in Afghan and just like the boys that need your help and you can't 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 see where they're getting shot from? No. Yeah, you'd be helpless. You're up there in the sky with with all this all these guns and stuff ready to go, but you can't. See. Yeah, and then obviously they just they got like down within fifty feet yeah. of the tree line, just yeah. started doing you know flybys, flybys just to just draw the fire. Yeah, yeah. And then they get back, and he's like, uh, "No, there's no holes." And then they get back to the 
shut the helicopter down. Obviously, all the pressures and all the oil starts bleeding out. <laughs> bleeding out. Then that bloody guy, guy from the yard, the flex seal out. That's a lot of damage. <laughs> all, and he, he was the boss too. Yeah, he was the he boss was the CEO of, the, of, the, of the squadron, the wing, which is pretty thing. cool because. You know, what better way to have someone lead the charge into battle mm. than your boss of, you yeah, know. that's cool. That's- he probably could have just sat back in the in the tock, I think that was what they call it. Uh, I don't even know what the tock. We just call it the tock. He could have just sat, sat back and chilled. Yeah. But I suppose like, you do train for, for a job, though. You want you want to do it, you know. Yeah. I suppose now all the Australian Defence Force fellas, probably the SAS, you know, they're all training up for stuff they can't do, you know. And I say that because the SAS probably got jobs going on that and we don't even know about but, um, you know, we've got all these boys up to Singo Train in Townsville, Darwin. Yeah. You know, it's just like, what are they doing for the next 10 years, you know? Like, but, you know. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, he finishes his time in Afghanistan, and he was he was the trigger man too on this Apache. Yeah, that's cool. Let's not fuck. forget that. So that's he cool has rained hell on a lot of Taliban. Like, just honestly, rained it. just paint a picture in our, in our guys' heads of what a 30 mil round would do, do to a person. It cuts, cuts. Yeah. Bang. Just cuts. <laughs> You're gone. You go. You you did. Go on. D E did. Did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then he joined the CIA. I'm actually surprised he, he's allowed to tell us that. Yeah. Well, he got out and then uh, started. Got back into the private the private sector and just thought, fuck this, boring, boring. I don't want to work at the butcher shop. This sucks. I work at Woolies. Oh, <laughs> Woolies. Not that saying that they're bad jobs, but, but you know, coming coming back from um, you know Afghanistan, being an Apache pilot, raining hell on Taliban. He obviously got bored and out of bank was. Not- Waking at bank was not for him. So he decided to join the CIA, yeah, which, you know. It's ultra cool. It's only so much he could tell us about the CIA because, again, only what we know and especially our listeners, and I'm sure you, the only thing you guys know is watching Dwayne Johnson on the CIA movie he was on. Kevin Hart. Intelligence Agency. That's all I really know about the CIA when it comes but to But we've things. all seen films and heard conspiracy theories about the CIA and stuff. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh, do they exist? You know, they're like the secret. Well, they definitely so exist. They definitely exist, but. And I guess they do the greater good, I suppose. I don't know. I, I don't want to. I'm a conspiracy for saying it. But <laughs> it's um. But no, imagine working for even like ASIO here in Australia. Imagine the stuff that's going on now, like, i.e. like counter-terrorism stuff that's going on, but we not the public don't even know about. There's guys in Canberra that go home every day and they're probably thinking, fuck, you know, we, yeah. just, we, just, we just saved. We just... We just bloody stopped this from happening. Yeah. Or we just seized this from... Oh, yeah. Fuck. I'm I, sure have, I have worked alongside with uh, intelligence agencies. Ooh. Yep, driving them around in some parts of the world. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. I can be That's a, enough I can say about it too. <laughs> I can it would be an ultra, ultra cool job. Yeah. You know? It like, would be cool just just to it's almost like living an alter ego life with your fake moustache and yeah. <laughs> it's one of those, you know, those sunglasses you put on, it's got the nose and Yeah, if you get give <laughs> the show back. <laughs> you know what I wish? I wish I could go back in time and be a spy throughout like the Cold War. Yeah, I reckon that'd be absolutely legit. Yeah, you know, imagine the shit because that was the era where like like espionage was getting like yeah. high and like everyone's got gadgets and shit. I reckon that'd be sick as <laughs> gadgets back in the Cold War. Inspector gadget, <laughs> you know, well not gadgets, but like they got like the Trident new like shit. That yeah, was creating. Yeah, SR Sep seventy ones cruising around at forty. Million yeah, that's feet. it. And uh, again, Ryan couldn't talk too much about it because uh, you know a lot of it is like top Obstack. top 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 yeah. secret because they are the. CIA, like it's just a weird word to say. C- I can guarantee you, people from ASIO will probably have. Like, I don't know how the they're frothing works. right now. They're froth. They're listening to us live through our microphone on our TV. Exactly. They have got that God's eye through the phone. <laughs> they're watching us on my yeah the webcam. <laughs> I can guarantee they're going to be putting that thing out there. They're just going to scam words like trigger words. Yeah, we're going to be up there. 
Yeah, oh, 100%. Wouldn't even, Especially with Skojo popping on the last episode. But anyway, that's, that's an old <laughs> um, But, yeah, so he spends eight years within the CIA, does a whole bunch of multiple different things, travels overseas, does his CIA thing with yeah. his fake passports. It'd be, it'd be Neither cool. confirm or deny. Yeah, it'd be ultra cool if, like, if you, like, go, right, oh, mate, you're on your death, deathbed, you know, you can tell everyone. What to do. Oh, yeah. Without like, names, without like place. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we did this, we did this in Bosnia, or we went and did this yeah. in Iraq. Or- you would, you would, wouldn't you? Oh, fuck. I would. I would. I would. Exactly. What, what yeah. are you going to do, kill you? <laughs> you're dead. That's the reason why you're in a deathbed. <laughs> yeah. And then he went on to do something completely different with uh, Google. Yeah, so and then he's got... St- well, as he said at the end of the CIA side of things, he started getting into that cyber analysis. Cyber security, if you will. Cyber security, if you will. And um, obviously, yeah. Essentially, <laughs> yeah. it's always against, against Epstein. <laughs> Didn't kill himself. <laughs> he did not. Um, and then he tra- yeah, transitioned to the tech side of things with Google and um, he's uh, the tech company that he's working for now. We can't really say. He didn't want us to say. Yeah, it's not to. But, um, Which is fine, and, but you could say it's a pretty, pretty, pretty big company. It's massive. Yeah. Massive. Anyway, <laughs> but he does all that tech stuff for them. Yeah. Um, and then he obviously- Trust and Security. Trust yeah. and Safety, sorry. Trust and Safety Institute. Institute. Um, so if you Google that, basically what we will chat about before, you can get a job without a qualification and earn the big bucks. And it's all on-the-job training, just like an apprenticeship. And you were thinking about it. Like, I could see it ticking through your head going, oh, if anyone not he's knows at 150K. I was like, if, holy shit, I'll move to America for 150K. Because it's like 150 that's about, that's about 200K Australian, almost I think it's K. more. Because you think the cost of living in America, obviously, like, food's pretty cheap. cheap. Uh, yeah, fuel's probably a little, cheap. fuel's cheaper than us at the moment. Yeah. Um, but like house prices, for instance. Now, obviously, if you're going to live in, like, Cali, it's going to be more expensive. But if you live in Texas where I like guns and, and meat. Yeah. Alpha meal. Um, <laughs> you know, the houses are quite cheap, but um, I'm always an, a man of finding new work. I just, I don't know, I, I hate sitting still. I couldn't imagine you working for Google. Oh, mate, What would you do? I would get bored as shit. Imagine sitting You'd there. You'd be just, a fluffer. <laughs> the be guy a, with the feather in a porn movie. <laughs> porn movie. <laughs> I'll be just going around eating all the free fl- food. Just fluffing people. <laughs> eating all the... Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, the internship. <laughs> that, yeah. Huh? Oh. All right, I'd be the fattest I'll be, I'll be Alan Wilson. You can be... Um, <laughs> Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn. Yeah, I'd be so fat if I worked at Google. <laughs> I wouldn't leave. <laughs> like, there's that guy living here. It's a janitor. He's living in the beanbag chair. <laughs> if you want to get in contact with Ryan, you can head to um, his uh, Instagram, which is uh, Combat Story. Again, he runs Combat Story, which is... Uh, he shares uh, veteran stories. So he's spoken to heaps of people... He's got 13,000 followers, um, something like that, but super cool dude, spoken to you know, veterans. Definitely jump on his Instagram, Combat Story, and follow and listen to his stuff. And if you want a job in doing some more IT um, stuff, yeah. Trust and Safety Trust Institute. Trust Safety Institute for 150K. I'll do it. I don't know what I'm doing, I'll, but I'll, I'll do it. Clean. I'll be a janitor. I'm clean. They, I'm sure they need security. I want to join the ass. Yes. I actually thought about it when I left left the Navy. For, I'm only a bosun. I wonder what I need to do. Well, being an American citizen. Well, no, ASIO. Yeah. Australian. Oh, Australian, sorry. It's like, um, you know what I mean? Like, what do you go to TAFE to do? I've or? looked at the website. I'm not going to lie. I've had a look. They have got, like, uh, intelligence officers and stuff like that. But you've got to live. Yeah, that's 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 the shitty thing. Sorry, I, everyone I, Again, I've, I've, met, a, I've met a few of these people. I'm just like, you're a fuck. 
They honestly are. Some they're, of they're all ex-defense too. Oh, yeah, they're just... I'm sure all Scout you, leaders. Not all of you ASIO are fuckwits, but there's, <laughs> there's a couple that I've met and they're fuckwits. There's fuckwits yeah. in any job. Yeah, I know. Woolworths, BP, <laughs> brothels, do- Domino's. <laughs> been, yeah, don't get me started on Domino's. Don't get me started on brothels, yeah. Domino's. Get your camera fixed on your on your pizzas. Your p- pizza scanner. Your quality control is not... <laughs> <laughs> there's no quality. Oh, anyway, we're going off track. Um, if you want to listen to our podcasts, um, head to our socials, Instagram and Facebook, zero.lenders.podcast. Leave us uh, a comment and shoot us a message. We're getting heaps of messages as always. Cool. And uh, we get, I, I try and get back to every single one of them, uh, which has uh, been super cool. I just I, I just look at him. Yeah. Shane, Shane just looks at him. <laughs> I don't want him to reply because, yeah, I don't know, we'll say. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to listen to it, obviously head to Sp- uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Audible. Google Podcasts, all the ones, and just, you know, search Zero Limits Podcast and it'll all pop up. Uh, our last episode was with uh, Mr. Rob Langdon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a huge feedback. Massive. It was three hours long, but everyone listened, and I even had another listen, and it was just, it was just, that was great. That was Do you great. know who he sounds like? He sounds like Mike Nolan off the uh, Big Les show. Yeah. Hey, gumbles. <laughs> Rob, if you're out there listening, bro, sorry. <laughs> um, just a quick one, Shane. Uh, yes. I, I got a message from someone on uh, in, on our Instagram, Just then? Instagram. Yep, and essentially, super, super pogue. Uh, Is that it? No, uh, Fraz. Uh, basically, just I'm just putting out a word out here. There, there is a job uh, in Melbourne uh, as a trainee termite technician. So, if you're a veteran out there looking for a job in Melbourne, you're thinking about getting into pest, pest control. control. Yep. Uh, this job's popped up. Base wage, sixty k plus car. Get a car. I don't know if you can request the car, maybe a Lamborghini. Vom vom. There's not many pest control Lamborghinis out there, but you could ask what, one. Yeah, I'd say you, you want you, you want what's a vet. Well, yeah, he wants a it's a it's a veteran, you know, yeah. it's a veteran thing. So he obviously wanted to find a company that could you know help him put the word out. But I said you know we'll, we'll do a shout out as well. Uh, so if anyone is in Melbourne, well, like Seek, <laughs> you see, yeah, see, but Seek you get all the yeah. Far out. We use Seek for our company, and sometimes some of the – you don't even get resumes sometimes. I want job. That's it. Yeah. It's great. Anyway. Right, and it's, we'll Seek's expensive. Yeah, so there's a job down in Melbourne, 60K if you want it. Uh, send us a message, and I can pass on the details. Yeah. It, basically, the bloke that runs it was in the – he's in the reserves. He's been in the reserves 20-plus years. So there's a job out there for a veteran in Melbourne if you're looking – you know, yeah. to discharge and get into pest control. Actually, one of my good friends actually has a pest control company down in Geelong, and I met up with him a few weeks ago, and he's driving around in a latest uh, BMW. So pest control is doing pretty good. Matthew Morris HR. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get on it. All right, guys. Well, enough of our shit chat. I uh, hope you guys had a sick Anzac Day. Matt and I had a fucking legit Anzac Day, even though he bailed at 14.30. Yeah. Um, I yeah. held the fort down. I got more pissed and chatted to some guys. And you know, if you saw me out there and I was annoying as fuck, uh, sorry, but <laughs> it happens. <laughs> it happens. And, yeah, we'll get that video out probably within a week or two. So there's so much yeah. shit to go there's through. So there's so much to go through. But anyway, anyway guys, yeah. uh, enjoy the Ryan Fugit podcast that you've just listened to. And Hope we, you've enjoyed it, actually. And we love you all. And we love you all. And uh, catches. See us. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, 
lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, got some merchandise. And just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our bio, you see that discount code, use it get your discounts. So again, jump on to 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.